what year did humankind acquire the capability to destroy itself? I think that's an interesting idea, isn't it? The idea that every civilization in the universe, if it continues to progress technologically down the road, will reach a period when it can kill itself, either on purpose or accidentally. This fits into something, um, some physicists' theories on what's called the Fermi paradox, and, and this idea of reaching a danger point in your civilization is called the Great Filter. The Fermi paradox is a famous paradox that was um, initially talked about supposedly by a bunch of the great physicists in the world on their lunch break, where they had done the math trying to figure out the possibilities of intelligent life being elsewhere in the universe. And the math is so overwhelmingly in favor of the idea that there must be, right? There's hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy, hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. It just seems like a slam dunk, right? So then Enrico Fermi, famously one of the great physicists ever, famously then says to the group, so where is everybody? And that's the Fermi paradox. If the math says they should be there, but they're not there, what's the reason they're not there? And that's where the great filter comes in, because some of these people who study this stuff have suggested that there might be a point in every intelligent civilization's development where they acquire this ability to destroy themselves and have to get through the period where they have that capability and get to the point where they figure out how not to do that. And it's kind of like a pass-fail test for intelligent civilizational growth everywhere in the universe. And sort of by its very nature, most civilizations don't pass it. And so maybe that's the reason they're not all out there. And guys like Nick Bostrom who study, you know, global catastrophic risk and stuff like that and, you know, what if a comet hit the planet? What if nanotechnology goes out of control? I mean, looks at all these issues. He suggests that the Earth entered this civilizational phase, this great filter period in our own history in 1945 when the atomic bombs were first used. Now, I think about this in terms of the First World War because I think that's when people first realized that human beings had acquired a military capability that was frightening. Not frightening because your enemy had it, frightening because human beings had it. You can go back and look at history, and there are lots of times when people were afraid of the deadliness of weapons, but they were afraid of the deadliness of weapons either because they were afraid themselves of getting killed or their country of getting taken over or whatever. They weren't afraid for the species. They weren't afraid for civilization as a whole. I mean, the closest you'll see... Um, you know, with that coming is you'll have like a Mongol invasion or invasion from the steppe and it, 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 it strikes the settled civilizations a bit like a wave and it washes up a certain amount, you know, of civilization up on the beach, but it doesn't destroy everything. In the 19th century, that's the first time period where you can read writings from people who are asserting that maybe what they're developing battlefield capability-wise can destroy everything. Now, their version of everything is a little bit different than ours. When we talk about things like existential risk, we're talking about the survival of life on the planet. That's, that's a post-atomic, you know, idea of what existential risk means. We understand, you know, you have a nuclear war amongst all the great powers and you can kiss life on Earth goodbye. Or certainly our level of civilization. You've heard that phrase, bomb someone back to the Stone Age? Well, we modern people have the capability to do that, right? But it was in the 19th century... That the, that the idea that that's what a major war between the major powers might amount to, that's when that idea takes hold. Those people are worried about definition number two, 
of existential threat. You know, guys like Nick Bostrom have two definitions. One is the one we think about, wiped out life on Earth. But the other definition of what an existential threat is, is being knocked back down a few rungs on your level of civilization and then never finding your way back to your former greatness. You know, to have a statue of liberty in the sand moment, as I like to call it, where you look up and you see the Statue of Liberty like in the Planet of the Apes coming out of the sand and you instantly realize in a blinding flash of light that you're living in an era that is off the civilizational highs. And that's what the people writing in the late 19th, early 20th century, especially in places like Great Britain and the United States, where everything seems just great. Why do we have to screw it up with a war and really nothing to gain and everything to lose? Those people are writing about living in a golden age that they believe is fragile and that these giant war machines that are equally deadly in terms of their abilities to kill people on the battlefield but also their ability to simply bankrupt the societies that have to maintain them is causing consternation. And, and the, the, the very weapon systems themselves and the arms races that they're having create more opportunities for some sort of violent outbreak of war that will then see these things employed. The funny thing about human history, if you study military history, is that up until about 200 years ago, you can imagine armies from a very long time ago, fighting and beating armies from not that long ago. I mean, Alexander the Great's army, I think, beats the Carolingian army of Charlemagne, which is, you know, a first-rate army a thousand years later. I don't think they must, the Macedonians must their hair. I mean, there are books like Arthur Farrell's The Origins of War, where that, you know, say, that credible historian can't help but play with the Battle of Waterloo, inserting Alexander and his Macedonians from the 330s BCE in the place of Napoleon and his French, sending the Macedonians up against the Duke of Wellington and his British and their coalition allies, and having Alexander and the Macedonians do at least as well as Napoleon. So what does that show you? Well, it shows you how all of human military history changes at about the time of the Napoleonic Wars, because all of a sudden, a new law of historical nature takes over, which says that earlier armies do not beat later armies. I mean, the rules changed a thousand percent. First of all, think about today. If you took the U.S. Army from today, had it fight a battle against, you know, the U.S. Army of 1945, today's U.S. Army destroys that Second World War Army, mid-20th century army, and maybe doesn't lose a man when they do it. But that 1945 U.S. Army would defeat easily any army from the First World War. Any army from the First World War of the major powers would easily defeat the United States in the U.S. Civil War. And those Civil War armies, if they went back to Waterloo, you know, beat Napoleon. So that's sort of the rule of the law of technological battlefield development for the last 200 years. And that's what the people in this story have had to try to suck up and understand. In 1700, some ruler can decide on a new musket design and not change it for 100 years, and he's still probably okay. In the 19th century, if you miss 15 years of development in rifle technology, you might lose a war because of that. I mean, think about something like the naval arms races and how this just destroyed everybody's treasuries and everything else. But at the beginning of the 1800s, you are using ship-of-the-line type stuff. I mean, you know, the same naval technology of giant wooden ships with cannons all in the side that's been the way things have been done for a couple centuries. 
And when you build a ship and spend all that money and all that time, it's good for a long time. If it doesn't get destroyed in battle, that ship can serve you for 20, 30 years and, and just be fine. Great investment payoff over time. If you amortize the cost over the decades, um, that goes away at the end of the 19th century. And yet the cost explodes. You look at a battleship from 1900 and it doesn't look like anything from Napoleon's time. It looks like a thoroughly modern battleship. The problem is, is technology is changing so fast now that in the time it takes you to design that new battleship, the two or so years it takes to build and launch and finish it, it may be outdated by the time it's ready to be used. You take a first-class, first-rate, you know, fleet from a global power in 1914, and you pit it in battle against a first-rate, top-of-the-line fleet from a mere 14 years ago, and the one from 1914 destroys the one from 1900 and maybe doesn't lose a major surface vessel while doing so. That is mind-boggling to the people who lived back then because that means if you can't keep up technologically with what your neighbor is doing at great expense, you can negate all the money you spent on that fleet in the first place. Better to not have that fleet from 1900 if you're just going to lose the whole thing and not even sink one of your enemy's ships. The need to keep up with the killing power of everyone else was impacting the treasuries of these countries in ways that created just as big of a threat to their continued existence as the threat of all these dangerous armies did. It was a catch-22 for them. Take the role that the Russian czar found himself in in 1898, a guy named Nicholas II, maybe the single most powerful person on the planet. He's got a shaky regime. There's a lot of revolution. There's a lot of discontent, and a lot of it is exacerbated by the costs of trying to, you know, keep up a modern military. And even with all these costs, he's falling behind. Russia's too illiterate. Its industries are too small. Its society still needs so much modernization before it can keep up with places like Germany and France and Great Britain and even the United States. The problem is, is that the czar's power is all in the country's size and the population. And that's becoming less and less important as technology begins to determine who wins and who loses battles. And that's being demonstrated all through the 19th century as these small colonial armies from the technologically sophisticated powers destroy sometimes giant armies of tribal natives all over the world. I mean, that line, uh, the famous one that says, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they have not, is about using machine guns on tribal peoples. The Russian czar is looking ahead and seeing that if he can't keep up with this technological arms race that seems to be never-ending and endlessly expensive, the Russians are just going to be the new tribal peoples. And yet he has to have this modern military machine because if his adversaries have it and he doesn't, he's going to lose any war he gets into. He loses his dynasty potentially either way. How do you get out of a mess like that? In 1898, the Russian czar thinks he finds a way, and he issues a public invitation to representatives from the other great powers who are one degree or another in the same boat he's into. No one knows what the next major war will look like, but everybody's had a chance to see some minor wars in the meantime, and if you sort of extrapolate what, what they were telling you, the next war is going to be horrifying. And Nicholas II was actually reading the guy who turned out to be one of the most accurate prognosticators of what the next war was going to be like. We talked about him in the last show, Ivan Block. Nicholas II is reading Ivan Block, and, and Block's predictions are horrific. 
So the Tsar wants out. He wants, he wants to figure out a way to stop this dangerous cycle that the modern world seems to be forcing all the great powers into. And I think it's a wonderful sort of commentary on the attitude of the times that these guys thought that they could do this. It looks like rainbows and unicorns to we modern people, but to them they must have thought reasonable people can sit down over cigars and whiskey, see this dynamic that we've got ourselves caught up in, realize that it's in no one's interest, and reasonable people can uh, you know, figure a way out of this. And in 1898, the Tsar of Russia proposed something that will be called the Hague Conference to deal with this. There are many ways to look at the 1899 Hague Conference, and there'll be another one in 1907, by the way. And truthfully, it looks like an early version of arms control agreements you will see throughout the 20th century, which you can also view through multiple lenses. The first one is you can take it at face value, the way the Tsar sold it. You know, if you want to use modern terms, the Tsar's PR people, when he issues this invitation to the rest of the world leaders, you know, couches this whole thing as a common sense effort at a high-minded idea. He says the goal of this conference he wants to put together is, quote, seeking to make the great idea of universal peace triumph over the elements of trouble and discord, end quote. We might sell an arms control conference today like that, this is the era where you really see for the first time in human history the growth of what today we would call the international peace movement. It's had many conferences before the Hague Conference to promote these ideas, and there was a general feeling of progress on these issues. And so the Tsar may have been playing into that, although the Tsar was kind of an interesting dude. Um, very much a similar role on the monarchy dice as the Germans got with Kaiser Wilhelm, a very mediocre sort of guy, not the sort of person you could imagine ever getting this job if it were merit-based. He's the same czar, the last czar, by the way, who will fall victim and under sort of the sway of the person that is sometimes called the mad monk, Grigory Rasputin, although he's more interesting than that and probably deserves more credit than that. But it kind of, again, shows you the czar as a kind of an idealistic, romantic... I mean, he might have bought into this stuff. It might be legitimate on the czar's part. But like most arms control agreements, there's a realpolitik side to this thing. The czar knows that his armies are falling behind in this technological race. The old line about arms control agreements is if you're losing an arms race, it's a good time to have an arms control agreement. And when the powers that are invited to this Hague conference ask for clarification of what's on the agenda, the czar and his people give them eight or nine points that are going to be goals of the conference. And the eight or nine points to a 21st century mind are fascinating because it really shows you what the czar wants to come out of this conference. The czar's number two goal, for example, that the agenda gives to the rest of the participants says, quote, to prohibit the use in the armies and fleets of any new kind of firearms whatever and of new explosives or any powders more powerful than those now in use, either for rifles or cannon, end quote. Now, this is a staple to some degree of arms control agreements ever since. I mean, if the U.S. and the Soviet Union are having an arms control agreement or an anti-ballistic missile agreement or whatever, they may have rules on technological progress, but they aren't trying to stop all technological progress. What the czar wants to do is freeze things where they are. He doesn't want any more research to increase the killing power that already exists in militaries. He doesn't want any more deployment 
if you accidentally discover that new battleship gun that will shoot twice as far as your current one, you can't deploy it. He wants the size of armies frozen and then reduced. He wants the size of military budgets frozen and then reduced. This is a person who clearly shows that his main issue with the way things are is the pace of change, and he wants this conference to address it. Now, to modern people, who will often freak out if the promised phone upgrade that's supposed to be released today is late, you know, the internet will blow up with angry people who have had their pace of change sabotaged, the people in the late 19th century can probably be forgiven for thinking something we would assume is impossible is possible. The first time I ever encountered this idea, by the way, was in James Burke's wonderful TV series from the 1980s, The Day the Universe Changed, where he asked the question, if humankind looks you know, down the road where a particular branch of knowledge seems to be taking them, can they decide if they don't like the destination to just not learn that branch of knowledge at all or to wall it off so that no one learns it? To modern people, that sounds impossible. To people in the late 19th century, they would have been able to show you multiple historical examples where that had been done. The Catholic Church was very good at it in medieval times, for example. There have been Chinese emperors who could do it well. Um, the idea of creating forbidden knowledge and then preventing people from having it or using it was not unusual in this time period. That's what the Tsar wants. He wants to slow or retard the pace of change. And I always try to remind myself how whipsawed all these people were in this time period by the pace of change, too. That's really what the 19th century is, the era where it all speeds up. If you could, for example, graph human technological progress the way you would a stock market performance graph, starting at the beginning of human history, ending yesterday, you know, and having your ups and downs all throughout history, you'd notice a couple of things right off the bat. The first thing you'd notice is that there are ups and downs. One thing the modern mind seems to find incomprehensible is that progress ever moves backward. The people who lived in 1900, for example, were reading history books that made that sound like a historical law of nature. They had every reason to believe that the era they were living in might be the last of a golden age before a fall, because after all, that's what had happened to every other golden age that they looked back on. The first thing the modern mind sees when it looks at the historical stock performance chart showing human technological progress is that there's a bunny hop sort of dynamic going on. Two steps forward, one step back. You might get a big upturn, you know, when the New Kingdom Egyptians come on the scene, maybe another uptick when the Han Chinese arrive, another uptick when the Roman Empire arrives, but after your Roman Empire highs, you get your Roman Empire bubble, don't you? And a couple hundred years later, when it's gone, you have Germanic barbarians in formerly Roman territory looking up at crumbling aqueducts and wondering what sort of giants once roamed the earth that could build stuff like that. So the first thing you're going to notice as a modern person is that technology doesn't always move forward. The second thing you're going to notice is that throughout most of human history, whether it's going up or going down, it's moving at a glacially slow pace. The amount of change from the beginning of time to about the Renaissance is nowhere near what you would expect if we were anywhere near the pace of change we have now. Very little overall growth until you hit the Renaissance, and then you see a little uptick. And then the century after that, a little bit more, and then about 1810, 1820, the graph becomes almost vertical overnight. It shoots up, and instead of ever plateauing, as we all know, it goes ever more vertical every day. 
Now, we're used to this because it's been going that way for a while. The czar's generation, yeah, that century, that's the first time it really takes off. And those people are looking at that as an extremely destabilizing force. The czar thinks perhaps an arms control agreement will help Russia from falling too far behind their more technologically sophisticated neighbors. Now, as you might expect, their more technologically sophisticated neighbors see this as an artificial constraint on the fact that they're winning. Take the Germans as a perfect example, a people who are trying very hard to make up for what they see as the rest of the powers treating them like dirt. They're the ones building more ships than anybody and trying to catch up to Britain. They're the ones modernizing their military every day. They're the ones who, instead of being panicked by the pace of change, are taking advantage of it. To them, this looks like an agreement that will lock in their inferiority. And by the way, that's a, a situation that will repeat many times after this period in arms control negotiations trying to gain an edge on your opponent. If you are losing the arms race, as I said, good time to have an arms control agreement. Finally, there's an interesting group of people, and they really don't exist anymore, not openly, that are on the opposite side of the ledger from, say, the international peace movement that's, you know, ramping up during this era. The people who think that war is a good thing, forget about international you know, goals or realpolitik, people that literally believe that humankind thrives on war and that without war, we will drown in materialism. It's the only thing that keeps us focused on the higher things. That's an idea that has sort of gone by the wayside in Western culture. Today, it's peace activists who argue against, you know, realpolitik people. In the 1880s, for example, you have guys like the elder Helmut von Moltke who tries to explain to people why peace is not even a good idea. You're deluded. He said, quote, Perpetual peace is a dream, and not even a beautiful dream, and war is an integral part of God's ordering of the universe. In war, man's noblest virtues come into play, courage and renunciation, fidelity to duty, and a readiness for sacrifice that does not stop at giving up life itself. Without war, the world would be swamped in materialism. End quote. Others will point out that if you decide to try to make war you know, a thing of the past, what happens to all those people that are in situations where, you know, they're struggling against foreign oppression, for example? Are you going to tell someone they can't free themselves from a horrible oppressor because, you, you know, violence is bad? But finally, you also have the people that the modern peace activists would recognize very well, those who adhere to a belief system that is difficult to argue with in terms of, you know, historical proof. If you're going to use history as your guide, you're going to argue that the best way to keep the peace is to be so strong that it is almost suicidal to fight with you. Best exemplified, perhaps, by British Admiral Sir John Fisher, who tries to explain to a friend of his that when he sounds horrific, he's really an advocate of peace. And he said, quote, I am not for war. I am for peace. That is why I am for a supreme navy. Did I not write in your autograph book at The Hague, the supremacy of the British Navy is the best security for the peace of the world? My sole object is peace. What you call my truculence is all for peace. If you rub it in, both at home and abroad, that you are ready for instant war with every unit of your strength in the first line and waiting to be first in and hit your enemy in the belly, and kick him when he's down, and boil your prisoners in oil, if you take any, and torture his women and children, then people will steer clear of you. End quote. Well, as harsh as that is, it has a certain amount of historical evidence to back it up, doesn't it? When asked 
How to Make War More Humane, the nephew of Helmut von Moltke the Elder, that would be Helmut von Moltke the Younger, the field marshal in charge of Germany's war effort at the start of the First World War, famously said the only way to make war humane is to make it short. Hence, the Schlieffen Plan. We talked about this so-called Schlieffen Plan in the last episode a bit. It's the almost mythological pre-war plan for how Germany was going to deal with this terrible two-front problem. My analogy is like a bar fight. Isn't there a meme online that I saw comparing World War I to a bar fight? But it's a little like, you know, Germany knows it's going to have a bar fight with France and Russia, but they know that France is going to be there five minutes before Russia, so they get to the bar right on time, knock France out, and five minutes later when Russia shows up late, they get to fight the Germans one-on-one. -on -one. That's the war plan in a nutshell. But the questions surrounding this war plan have become maybe the number one most controversial issue that historians argue with each other and froth at the mouth over. And yours truly, you know, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm just going to sit back, eat popcorn, and watch the very entertaining discussions on the Schlieffen, so-called Schlieffen plan, because it's not just a this or that. It's like a Kennedy assassination thing where, I mean, every different theory you can think of is out there. There was a Schlieffen plan. No, there wasn't a Schlieffen plan. There was a Schlieffen plan, but it was modified. It was modified by Molka. Then why not call it the Schlieffen-Molka plan? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And the people often on multiple sides of this issue are very credible. So I'm not getting, it's like trying to weigh in on a discussion with scientists. You just have to sort of watch sometimes. So I'm not going to take a position on this so-called Schlieffen plan. And we'll call it the Schlieffen plan because that's what everybody knows it by. But suffice it to say this. Schlieffen's retired for quite a long time before the First World War breaks out. So whatever plan the Germans were going to use are in the hands of Helmut von Moltke, the younger, the guy who's leading this whole, you know, early war on the Germans' part. And he's been the one designing this plan for a long time. After the First World War is over, you will get a bunch of German generals writing memoirs, sort of castigating this Moltke guy, um, for deviating from Schlieffen's amazingly brilliant plan, is the way it was it's pronounced. If you had just stayed with the plan the way it was supposed to be, you know, we win the war. And so it's worth talking about the plan a little bit. From a military history standpoint, the Schlieffen plan, and again, I have to say, as it's normally understood, because somebody out there is going to have a very good piece of evidence showing it was totally different than I'm saying right now, but as it's, as it's commonly understood, the Schlieffen plan is a fantastic military gamble. It involves taking troops from basically everywhere else you might have to fight and taking as many of them as you can and sticking them on that one part that's going to be the sledgehammer, the head of the sledgehammer. And your superiority in numbers at the head of that sledgehammer is going to be so overwhelming it's going to crush everything. And then you can swing it around and trap all the French armies that are sitting on the French border, you know, waiting to fight the Germans on the other side of the German border, but the head of the hammer is coming through Belgium a neutral country. It's going to swing from above, and then it's going to collapse down on all those French armies facing the Germans and trap them in the rear. But it's a huge gamble. What if you screw up? What if the Russians mobilize faster than you think they're, they're going to? Well, they'll be mowing down your tiny little forces left there to stop them, and they're not that far from Berlin, and the first territory they're going to take over happens to be the ancestral home of Prussia's nobility, including Kaiser Wilhelm. So nobody wants to see the Russians anywhere near Prussia, but they happen to be kind of near Prussia anyway, so that's a problem. Also, 
Everyone knows the French are going to want to retake those territories that the Germans took a generation before, which is down at the Franco-German border, which means the French are going to attack there with a lot of forces. You pull too many people away from there, the French could be breaking through into southern Germany while the head of your sledgehammer is still working its way, you know, around French flanks. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible gamble because if you screw it up, you could lose the war. But let's remember two things. When Schlieffen is writing the war plan, and he supposedly came up with this idea, the conditions are different. The German army is different in size. So is the French army. The Russians have almost seen a complete collapse in 1905 of their whole dynasty. I mean, they're falling apart. They just lost a war against Japan. They're nowhere near as formidable as they'll be, you know, 10 years later, right? Nine years later. But that's when von Moltke has to deal with things. And the situations are different, and he has to recalculate things. And the second part of that whole equation is that Schlieffen could afford to be a gambler because he doesn't actually have to do it. Schlieffen is a gambler on paper. Moltke is a guy who has to make this work in real time and not have the downside happen and live through it. And he's more of a pessimist. Maybe you would say more of a realist. And he won't put as many troops in the sledgehammer part of the attack as Schlieffen would have dictated you should. He won't denude the other fronts to as great a degree and leave them that wide open. He can't assume that the war will be won so automatically that you can just know that Germany will be safe and won't be broken through in all these areas you've denuded. In other words, Moltke's a more conservative guy. But if this plan is true, I'm going to keep saying that disclaimer so I don't get in trouble. If this plan is true, um, it puts Moltke in a position of accepting a gamble of a plan for a guy who's not a gambler. But that's the plan. And in order to understand the sledgehammer side of this plan, you have to have some sort of conception of the size of the armies involved. For comparison purposes, and again, it sort of demonstrates how much things have changed in a military sense and how they've exploded since Napoleonic times. If you look at assumptions made by people who study the Roman Empire, one of the favorite subjects that they will debate is how many human beings were in the military of the Roman Empire at its height to police and take care of that massive ancient state. And I don't mean in any one battle. I mean the total military power of the Roman Empire at its height. And you will get numbers anywhere from 450,000 men at the low end and about 750,000 men at the higher end. Now, the numbers of Germans that are making their way through Belgium in August 1914 as part of the sledgehammer's head is at least... 750,000. Some numbers put that up to a 1.2 million. That means that the flanking force, the head of the sledgehammer, as we keep calling it, that's moving through Belgium to smack the French like a door swinging on a hinge, is at least as large as the entire military of the Roman Empire at its height. And if those lower numbers are actually closer to the truth for the empire's, you know, total military capability, then you might have a German army moving through Belgium that's twice the size of the entire Roman Empire at its height. That totally justifies all of the worst fears of these you know, people in the 19th century worried about this, the kind of folks who would call a Hague conference and, and write about peace and all that kind of stuff, and the people who understood what the growth in the military technology was going to do. Ivan Bloch's ideas are about to be proven true in no uncertain fashion. I mean, these people were used to Napoleon. Well, Napoleon's, you know, giant gamble of invading Russia may have had at its highest 750,000 men across the entire front, you know, from a giant front of Russia. 
that's what you have moving through the tiny little road system and railroad system of Belgium. Napoleon's Grand Army is your flanking force. Wow. Now, I keep trying to remind myself that what the Germans are trying to do here is not perhaps as much of a, of a weird gamble as you might think. And we also need to remember that most of the people in the higher leadership positions in the German military have done all this before. In fact, they fought France before. It's probably the most important war that happened between Napoleon's times and the First World War. And most people outside of Europe know nothing about the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871. But essentially, forget what it says, you know, in the history books, because it makes it look like a nine-month war. Essentially, the Germans smashed the French in a month and a half. It's a fantastically interesting conflict, and it shaped the perceptions and views of these people in the higher leadership positions because they were junior officers who fought in that war, right? They watched two amazing things happen. They watched the German armies trap an entire French army of like 80, 90,000 men in one of the French fortresses that was there to you know, keep the Germans from crossing the border. And then the actual emperor of France himself, a guy named Napoleon III, another one of those interesting roles of the monarchy dice, leads a relief army. He's going to break the siege, right, and rescue his other army of another 80 or 90,000 guys. And the Germans managed to surround the whole army with the emperor and force them to surrender which then, of course, means that entire army that's also trapped nearby has to surrender, too. I mean, the French fought on for a long time, doggedly. Um, the, the people of Paris rose up. I mean, there was a fantastic resistance after this. But the war was over in a month and a half. That was the way the Germans wanted to do it again this time. And the people who did it last time are the ones in command of a lot of these, you know, corps and armies and in the general staff. Now... As the Germans try to make their way, you know, through Belgium and not have this important time schedule screwed up, the French on the other side are trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Part of what we modern people have to remember, and I always try to try to put myself in their position, it's very hard because we're in an era where the battlefield, especially to Western powers and most especially to the United States, the battlefield is totally visible for the most part. You can hide yourself in foliage sometimes, maybe. We're nearby, we're going to have, you know, thermal sensors and stuff. But the battlefield is visible to us now, and we're used to this. In most of human history, the fog of war, as it's known, is huge because it keeps you from seeing what's about to happen until it just is about to happen. You don't get a lot of advance notice to plan. That's why aircraft start becoming really important because they take the eyes of the military, put them up in the air and ex extend how far back you can see. If you see, you know, armies moving to another area, you can safely assume, uh oh, I better move my armies to another area. Something's going to happen over there. During this early part of the battle, no one is sure what's happening on the Allied side. The French are as worried about how they get the British over here to fight with as many men as they can bring over, as they are about where are the Germans coming and, 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 and in what sort of strength. You see, the French have suspected for a very long time that the Germans were going to do this outflanking move in Belgium. That was not totally unexpected. The part that may have caught them off guard is what they were outflanking, you know, the French through Belgium with. The guys running the French military at this time, working on their own war plans assumptions, simply won't believe that the size moving through Belgium is as big as it is. And let's remember, Moltke will be criticized after the war by other German generals who are mad it's not bigger. I mean, and the, the French have huge problems here. 
because they have one of the loosest agreements I've ever run into in my life for, you know, military cooperation. Their battle plans call for the British Army to guard their entire lines. And when we talk about a line, the French military line runs from Switzerland in the south to Belgium in the north. Millions of men in multiple armies. And by the way, on the other side of the border, the Germans have the same thing. First time in human history that you've had millions of men squaring off against millions of men. But the French left flank is counting on having the British Army there to anchor it. That agreement has less paperwork attached to it than you would normally generate when you buy a house. For all intents and purposes, as we said, it's a handshake deal. A handshake deal that we will go to war with you if war breaks out. And a handshake deal with only one government in a country where governments can come and go. And where public opinion isn't unified. And a nation that you've had centuries of antagonistic history with and only like five or eight years of, you know, friendly cooperation. What's more, when Britain gets into this war, and then the first thing that the British people hear is we're going to send the troops that would defend us if the Germans decide to land on our coastline to France, there's a lot of question over how many troops to spare. Eventually, the BEF will get to France with 70,000 men, five divisions, four infantry, one cavalry. To give you an idea of what 70,000 men or five divisions means on this front, the Germans are deploying like 85 divisions on the Western Front. 70,000 men seems like nothing. That's the tiny little, you know, it's the army of a sea power, isn't it? That's the tiny little force that Bismarck, a generation before, that iron and blood German diplomat had famously said when one of his aides said, what if the British land their army on our coast? He says, then I'll have them arrested. This is the army that was so small you could joke about arresting them. But here's the difference. Unlike all the other major armies of the participants in this war, the British army are professional, long-standing, regular force with a lot of people in the especially the non-commissioned officer ranks who were lifers and who, when this war started, immediately called up their reservists, guys who served 10, 15, 20 years before and had fought in places like South Africa and the Boer War in the turn of the century. The institutional memory of these units was deep. The quality of these forces was intense. They used to have, you know, unlimited marksman practice and get financial rewards for you know, winning it. They'd actually, you know, a lot of the people in these units fought in actual combat with modern weapons. My favorite source from this early period is an Irishman, you know, as you might imagine, uh, who's actually fighting in the BEF. His name is John Lucy, and he's one of the few British side uh, reporters, I guess you could call him, but he's a soldier, who writes from this very early period, because he was right in the first wave. And he explains you know, the difference between his unit and the rest of the Continental troops. And he does so in a very chauvinistic, uh, very proud fashion. But he claims, quote, The British Army in 1914 was more used to battle than that of any other nation. It possessed the highest and bravest traditions that can be engendered in a fighting force. And its experience of wars was such that our own regiment, though a young one in the army, had so many battle honors that they were difficult to memorize. End quote. Now, John Lucy's only 20. He doesn't have a long service history under his belt, but when the reservists arrive, 
He watches men who appear to be just regular folks off the street transform themselves into grizzled British veterans. Quote, Our reservists came streaming in to make up our war strength, cheerful, careless fellows of all types, some in bowler hats and smart suitings, others in descending scale down to the garb of tramps. Soon, like us, they were uniformed and equipped with field kits, and the change was remarkable. Smart sergeants and corporals and beribboned veterans of the South African War hatched out of that crowd of nondescript civilians and took their place in duties as if they had never left the army. They were an excellent lot, but their numbers increased our strength to an uncomfortable extent. End quote. What John Lucy found to be an uncomfortable increasing of numbers when they arrived at the continent seemed like a tiny little trickle of British soldiers. But the quality of this army that came to be known as the Old Contemptibles was of the highest level, matching the top German units. It was ironically under the command of a British general named French, who didn't very much like the French. Sir John French would lead the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, onto the continent just in time to play their historic role in what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle called the most terrible August in the history of the world. They'll be involved in several battles that are all called the Battle of the Frontiers. There's a bunch of little battles that are all sort of wrapped up into this one big event called the Battle of the Frontiers. What it really means is, is all the fighting that was going on along this front, and there are several sort of thrusts and parries and counter thrusts that go on. I'm going to spend a little bit more time than I normally plan to for the rest of this series on this battle because this, this Battle of the Frontiers is in so many ways the most interesting moment of this war. First of all, it's what we've talked about for an episode and a half now. It's the rubber meets the road moment, the testing moment for all this military theory and hypothesis that's been happening in some cases, you know, for the last hundred years. You get to see if people's assumptions about how this weapon system would work or that tactic would fare. You get to see, you know, which of those turn out to be correct and which ones don't. And a lot of the time, these armies will go into combat hamstrung by decisions that were made a decade before in terms of what the army's doctrine is going to be or the tactics or how they're going to be, you know, dressed and equipped. I mean, take the French. The French will go into this modern war and it is almost impossible to understand this today because there's a ludicrousness to it that shows off another century. You want to see the 19th century clash with the 20th century? It happens in this Battle of the Frontiers in August 1914. The French go into combat with almost the exact same uniform their grandfather's wore in 1870. A blue jacket with tails, wide red pants that look like targets, and acted like it too. Their officers would have white hats and white gloves. I mean, again, targets. They will send cavalry to go fight that look like, I mean, you can go look at your history books in 1914, and they often have pictures of this cavalry. I told my friend who was always asking for, you know, I would love to see a picture of Napoleon's cuirassiers, you know, his famous cavalry with the breastplates and the horsehair plumed helmets, you know, and the sabers and the whole thing. And I said, you don't have to wish for a picture of Napoleon's cuirassiers. They're going off to war in 1914. They look identical. Armor and all. 
That's the old world going off to war, and you can see it visually. Think of how the French soldiers hamstrung by that. The British have been using khaki, you know, for themselves since the colonial wars, you know, in the 1880s. The French are going to go into this war looking like walking peacocks. And a ton of French soldiers will pay the price for that. They'll pay the price for not having much in the way of heavy artillery, too. Again, these were all ideas that you could logically back up. The French decided they wanted to have more mobile armies, so we don't need that big, heavy, cumbersome, you know, slow artillery to slow us down. By the time that gets anywhere, the battle's going to be over anyway. Sounds great, in theory, till you try it and you find out your soldiers are in terrible trouble on the actual battlefields because they don't have any heavy artillery. There's a reputation the French have militarily in the United States that is inordinately influenced by the way the Second World War went. I always try to tell people, you misunderstand France's military reputation then because for hundreds of years, they're considered one of the finest, if not the finest, land army in the world. A hundred years before this time, a little Corsican guy is using, you know, especially as the hardcore of his armies to conquer the majority of the world that mattered at this time, and the one that owned the rest of the majority of the world as colonies, and did it with French troops. They will often heroically throw their lives down to try to overcome these deficiencies that they enter war with. I think you could make a case that in all three wars, that over 75 years the French and Germans fought with each other from 1870 to 1945, that the average French soldier on the ground was hamstrung by his leadership in all three of those conflicts. In the Second World War, I mean, historically, tragically. But I would suggest that the war out of those three in which French leadership performed the best was in the First World War. There are a bunch of different generals that I think Second World War France would have given their right arm to have, um, led by a guy who is iconic. I've always thought of him as like the French Churchill. You know, what Churchill was to Britain in the Second World War, this guy is to France in the First World War. And he has all these same stereotypically interesting anecdotes and characteristics that Churchill had, but instead of them being stereotypically British, as Churchill's were, they're stereotypically Gallic. They're French. You know, Churchill had this thing with alcohol that was part of his image and part of the fun. With um, this guy, it's food. And that's because it fits perfectly with his physical sort of image. He's huge in every way. He's tall. He's fat. He's got a giant, bushy, white mustache and a placid look on his face all the time. His name is Joseph Joffre. And if I mispronounce that again, that's just going to be the first of many. My apologies, because he's still, you know, the lion of France in a lot of French households. He's a fabulously interesting guy, but, you know, I've read a significant amount on this person, and I'm not sure I understand him any better than before I started, and what's more, I'm not sure these authors did either. He is like an obelisk. I mean, he is imperturbable. Good luck scratching the surface and figuring out what you have there. And even his contemporaries felt that way. One thing when you read quotes that people who knew him say about him is, one, they, they say different things sometimes, and two, sometimes they didn't know what this guy was up to. I mean, you know, sometimes you look at something and you wonder if he's just a little dull or slow or is he, you know, sly like a fox and just hiding everything. I mean, it's, it's, he's an interesting guy. You could probe this guy a long time and, and still not really get a good idea about what you're dealing with here. The one thing you can say about him is he, he's got one of those qualities of generalship that's just going to be a perfect match for what's needed at the time. And I've always said that 
You know, generalship is absolutely an art. And in the same way that art, you know, sees the manifestation of the artist's personality sort of translated in its own unique way in, in the art form, generalship is like that too. And you can see all these different kinds of generals who all have these different kinds of personalities and they command that way. And, and, and the key is to try to find your strengths and then, you know, figure out a way to make those strengths work for you on a battlefield. Take, for example, these really aggressive commanders, these quick-thinking, hard-pushing, dashing sort of guys. Um, Heinz Guderian, the famous uh, guy who basically created the German tank approach in the Second World War, he was that kind of guy. The guy, by the way, who's commanding the most important army on the German side in this war, the, the sledgehammer head army, first army, is a guy just like this too. Hard-driving, aggressive kind of guy. That sort of approach is perfect in some situations and in some armies. But then you need the bean counter guy sometimes too. That's what von Moltke is. He's a bean counter. He sits there and, and plans everything out to the nth degree and makes sure all the T's are crossed and the I's dotted and you don't have anything. I mean, those guys are very useful too. The inspirational generals like an Alexander the Great who get out there and get your troops to perform you know, feats of heroism that maybe a lesser man or woman couldn't have gotten them to perform. There's, there's all these different kinds of generals. Joffre is the kind that doesn't ever get ruffled. That's what he brings to the table. He refuses to panic. He's almost frightfully calm in situations that he's about to experience that, that, that are not only stressful to the point of panic, but that perhaps panic is the right emotion to have. Now, there are historians out there who suggest that we should not look at that as such a great quality to bring to the table because it might be Joffre's own shortcomings in some of the other arts of generalship that made it necessary for there to be a guy who wouldn't panic at the top to begin with, wouldn't be needing to panic if you'd have been a better player of that blind chess game that we talked about earlier, and maybe Joffre's not that good at that game, hence the situation becomes panic-inducing, hence a leader that's very good at stopping panic is just what you need at the time. Anyway, might be a self-reinforcing sort of thing, but I think it's hard to deny that France would have given up a right arm and both legs to have this guy in the Second World War. And the reason that this guy is going to be so necessary, this imperturbability is going to be so necessary, is because of how this first round in this heavyweight championship fight that's going to go on for four years is going to go. If you're going to use a boxing analogy here for this, it's going to be a, a, a boring fight um, as the fight goes on, you know, where things slow down to a dull roar and everybody's looking for tactical opportunities. And, and, but the first round is wild. Massive haymaker swings, misses, dropping the other guy for, you know, an eight count. I mean, it's going to be a wild first round. And if you lose your head, you could lose the war. So having Joffre at the, at the French high command shows that the French are not going to lose their head. I can't help but think about the German commander at this point, though. Von Moltke is a very interesting guy in the sense that he almost looks like a guy who doesn't want to be there. You know, he is the nephew of one of the greatest heroes in German military history. It's almost like he went into the family business. But whereas those guys thought about nothing but war all the time, and remember, Schlieffen, the legendary writer of the Schlieffen Plan, is supposed to have died still saying stuff about the Schlieffen Plan. The last words on his lips are supposedly, make sure to keep the right wing strong. I mean, these are people who have no hobbies other than war. Von Moltke, the younger, is a guy who famously said that art was what he lived for. And I think about this guy in the most, one of the most stressful positions in all history once this war breaks out. 
Remember, he has no illusions about what the stakes are. He's the one who famously said that the war that he's launching will decide the course of history for the next hundred years. And it certainly has. Think of the pressure on that, though. Think about the fact that his plan that he's operating with is a terrible gamble. And then watch how every flip of the coin so far in this conflict has gone against him. I mean, if you're judging this fight based on who landed the latest punch, von Moltke and the Germans are losing right from the very beginning. I mean, think about the coin flips that have already happened. I mean, think about the Belgium one to begin with. I mean, you were hoping that when you invaded Belgium, they just sort of stood by the side of the road and let you go through. Maybe it would feed you and everything, right? You would, that's, what, that's what your hope was. Could have been a, a flip of the coin. Instead, the Belgians resisted you. They destroyed the communication and transportation system you were hoping to use. And then to make matters worse, some of them were shooting at you, allegedly. So your troops had been executing Belgians, which makes you look terrible on the world stage. So that coin flipped the wrong way. And then you flip the coin again. Maybe Britain won't get involved when we violate, you know, the neutrality of Belgium, right? It's just a scrap of paper, as the German diplomat famously said. Oh, that landed on the wrong side of the coin, too. The British came in. You lost that flip. Another flip happens starting on August 15th. And the timetable's going to get weird now because there's stuff happening on multiple fronts that overlap with each other. Because while this is going on, you know, the first maneuvers are going on in the West too. But but on the 15th of August, if you're von Moltke watching how your, your planned attack is, is going and you haven't even gotten your sledgehammer head through Belgium yet, so you're still a ways away from your attack doing anything, but you've got things starting to collapse around you. On August 15th, the Serbs, remember, this is a moderate country fighting a great power. You know, some Serbian gunman killed the Austrian Archduke, and that's why we're here, right? I mean, the one thing everyone was sure about is that no matter what happens in this conflict, Serbia is going to get their butt kicked because they're fighting Austria-Hungary, who's right next door, and they're a global power. The Austro-Hungarians are camped out sort of on a hillside by a river on, on the 15th of August, 180,000 Serbs attack them. The Austro-Hungarian army has about 200,000 people, and it, its morale just collapses. And we, we told you before, the Serbs are one of those people historically who, in a military sense, kind of punch above their weight class. They're ferocious fighters. They're aggressive, uh, aggressively led. And the Austro-Hungarian forces were apparently more riddled with problems than anyone knew. And a lot of them will drown routing across this river um, pursued closely by 180,000 Serbians in three armies. Think about what this does if you're von Moltke in terms of stress, because you're hoping that the Austro-Hungarians can help you keep the Russians off your neck until you're done in France. Remember, you got to deal with enemies on each side of you. You're hoping your ally right there is going to be able to help. And yet they just got their tail kicked by a moderate-sized power, what's going to happen when they face the Russians? And then, on the 17th of August, the biggest disaster at all, if you're von Moltke, occurs. And the Russians arrive early. Talk about flipping the coin before the war, assuming you can get all this stuff done before the Russians mobilize, and then they mobilize early. So by August 17th, Von Moltke's has problems everywhere, and, and, and it becomes a real question whether or not he's ever going to be able to use his war-winning sledgehammer 
because maybe he'll have lost the war everywhere else before that even happens. I mean, there's writings you can you can read from this time period in 1914 that think that the war is almost already over. Meanwhile, on the 14th of August, Joffre and the French launch an attack into Alsace-Lorraine, the first real attack, I should say. They, they, they sent a token force in there on the 7th of August, um, which is, you know, got to remember, 7th of August is four days after France and Germany declare war on each other. They send a token force in there, you know, with messages from the French leadership about, you know, here, we're home, you're back in the bosom of France, all these wonderful things, kisses, picnic baskets, flowers, wine, the whole deal, you know, welcome with open arms. And then all of a sudden, that little token force with the roses and wine and everything has to run back across the French border because the German force that's nearby is not a token force. So on August 14th, the day before the Serbs smash that Austro-Hungarian army um, that so discomforts von Moltke, the French launch two armies into Alsace-Lorraine, and it's serious now. Now it's on. Now we have two of the best armies in the world clashing head-on with significant numbers of people, and the French push the Germans back. And then the next day, they push them back again. And then the next day, they push them back again. Now, it should be noted that while the rest of the world thinks this looks like just one more disaster for Germany's side, you know, you have all these other problems. The Russians are already in East Prussia, and now look at the French. The first time they launch a significant attack, the Germans are backing up. But that's one thing I'm sure von Moltke wasn't stressed about, because that retreat by the Germans was all part of the plan. The Germans, of course, for decades knew that the French would involve Alsace-Lorraine in any war effort, and so they put troops there who had orders to retire, to just sort of keep the French engaged, but move backwards as they move forwards, let them even into Germany, shoot them as they're pursuing you, take your toll on them as they're pursuing you, but retire in good order, take your guns with you, and just sort of pull them away from all the parts of the war that matter. You see, when the French figure out about this sledgehammer, I've also compared it to a door on a hinge, because you have all these German armies stretching from the Swiss border all the way up to Belgium, and most of them are just there to keep the French occupied. The damage that's going to be done is going to be done by that door sort of in Belgium and Luxembourg, that swings closed on top of the French nation. The other German army's job is to keep the French in front of them occupied so they can't turn around and move in a different direction and do anything about that hammer. And those French armies way down south in Alsace and Lorraine, which are down by the Swiss border, that are you know pursuing German armies back into the interior of Germany, are just getting farther and farther away from where they can help once the French realize they need every army they can get their hands on to deal with that threat. So von Moltke's not upset about this. This is part of the deal. And that starts on August 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th. It continues. The, the Russians are in East Prussia now. The Austrians have been defeated on their front. Since the 7th of August, but really big on the 11th and 12th of August, the British Expeditionary Force has been arriving on the continent. And they keep saying they're not going to be ready to fight until maybe the 26th of August. But the French would like them there sooner. One Frenchman in particular is desperate to have the British show up as early as possible. This is the French general who is commanding the army on France's left flank, right? The last army, you know, it's, it's kind of facing sort of Belgium, where if you look to your right, they've got several armies, millions of men all the way down to the Swiss border. 
totally protected from anybody penetrating our ranks and hitting us in the flank. But if that fifth army under a general named Lenrezic looks to the left, looks north, there's nobody there. There's open land. There's maneuvering room for an enemy to get around his flanks and destroy him and roll the whole French line up all the way down to Switzerland if necessary. So he's got a vested interest in being aware of any potential threats out there because he's going to take it in the flank, you know, when it, when it shows up. And he perceives even before the war starts, he's sending messages in July to Joffre saying, you know, all signs point to a German advance through Belgium, basically which is one reason you knew the high command knew about it. They just, nobody knew how big it was going to be. But this general and Rezik keeps telling them every couple of days, he's sending messages to the high command going, you know, latest reports are, or you know, huge attack. I mean, he, he basically the way history will vindicate this guy is he correctly perceives the power and destination of this German blow long before anyone else does. And one of the historical what-ifs in this time period is what if Joffre had taken what he was saying seriously sooner? Again, maybe you don't need to be such a wonderful um, stability factor when panic is all around you if you don't make a mistake like not listening to this general, you know, which creates the panic-inducing situation to begin with. Joffre basically thinks the guy is panicking. And then he starts saying, you know, as it becomes apparent that something is moving through Belgium, I mean, those forts are going down, um... He starts thinking this is going to be a good thing for the same reason it's a good thing for the Germans to have those French go through Alsace-Lorraine and keep advancing away from where the action's going to be. Um, Joffre's idea is, listen, even if the Germans are going through Belgium with a large force, all the better. Our plan's going to be to cut that large force off. If this is a swinging gate or door, we will hit it at the hinge. And then we will roll up behind it all the way up to the water, you know, in the in the North Sea or the English Channel right there, and then you're cut off, and then this wonderful, you know, sledgehammer blow becomes a surrounded, trapped cream of your army. So he turned a negative into a positive and basically would tell Len Rizek that you have nothing to worry about. Len Rizek thought different and figured his chances would be improved if that British force would hurry up and come up on his left so that even though the British might have an open left flank, he wouldn't have one anymore. And it's at that point that the Battle of the Frontiers breaks out. Now, the Battle of the Frontiers is named that because it's the time where the general eruption of violence um, on the Franco-German border happens. And there are a lot of different encounters that are all uh, part of this larger conflict. It essentially, though, is an umbrella term that covers all the violence on the Franco-German border that breaks out almost simultaneously. And it turns out to be a really important thing for the German war effort that it did. Because, you know, by about August 19th, the German situation really is bad, as we said earlier, but, but things have even gotten worse. Those Russians in East Prussia that had shown up sooner than expected had defeated some German forces that went out and tried to deal with them. All of a sudden, it looks like that flank might be collapsing. It's hard to get really excited about anything if you're Moltke, whose nickname, you know, given to him by the Kaiser was something that translates loosely to gloomy Gus anyway, not exactly an optimist anyway, he couldn't have been feeling too good about the situation. 
On the 19th or 20th, he receives a request from one of his generals in the field. It's the guy who is retreating from all those French forces, retiring in good order, taking his guns with him and sort of drawing them away from the action. He's one of the wonderful German royalty that's part of this. This isn't, you know, in the Wehrmacht in the Second World War, you didn't have any of this. In this First War, you have all these guys like Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria, and he commands um, the force that's retreating. He doesn't like retreating. You know, you don't get a lot of medals for retreating. It's not exactly what he was hoping to do with an army in this war. So he requests to von Moltke, can I attack? Now, this goes against the idea of what he's supposed to do, right? He's the retreater. He pulls this French force away from where the sledgehammer is going to hit. But he makes a pretty good case. These French are asking for it. They're sitting ducks. They've been sort of like getting more and more disordered and strung out after days of pursuing us, and we've been shooting them with artillery and weakening them. They're ripe for a counterattack. We'll crush them. And this is one of several incidents that will happen literally in the next few days that some historians have pointed to for years as the moment when the Germans lost the war. In this case, some historians say that Moltke's response to Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria lost him the war. He told Ruprecht that he could counterattack the French, who were strung out and disorganized and asking for it. And on August 20th, he does. He crushes them. Now, this is the time where you get to see, perhaps from a soldier's perspective, the thing that had changed battle and warfare the most really come into its own. Machine guns made a huge difference, make no mistake about it. And there were a lot of things that seem relatively benign when you look at them that made huge differences too, like barbed wire. But the element that technology and land warfare had altered the most in terms of something that would change the face of warfare and how it was fought and experienced by human beings on the ground, artillery had come leaps and bounds beyond anything anyone had expected. And it's artillery that on August 20th hits the French when they're still in tight columns, marching and mustering and just sitting around. I mean, later in the war, Ernst Junger, a German soldier, will write about the effect on a shell, one single artillery shell landing in a group of people that were just, you know, sitting around in a town square, 150 of his um, soldier comrades. And he said the one shell killed 70 of them outright. Now imagine if you're in March column or if you're gathered around a, a mess uh, a center or uh, taking a religious service in in the field or whatever when you're closely massed with your buddies and then modern artillery hits you. And remember, part of this is the technology of the guns. The other part of it is the science and engineering that goes into you know, making artillery effective, not just shooting the gun up in the air, but you should see the, the scientific calculations, these soldiers on the ground, so the mathematics they had to do to make sure that everything was honed in the right way and everything. And that really differentiated, by the way, the good armies from the less good armies. The Russians had a ton of artillery. They didn't have good engineering people shooting it, so it was often inaccurate and not effective. The British and the French and the Germans had exceptional people working their artillery, and it was very effective. And the German artillery was bigger and better than anything that the French had. This is where they find out that that idea of that light, mobile, 75-millimeter artillery getting the job done in every situation was horribly flawed. In fact, it was outranged by the German pieces. The Germans could hit it when they couldn't hit the Germans. 
And when the German army under Crown Prince Ruprecht hits the French in a counterattack on August 20th, the artillery just devastates them. As historian Eric Brose writes, quote, The first furious fighting occurred in southern Lorraine, where the French Second Army, having progressed 35 kilometers, was hit at Meringue by the German Sixth Army that counterattacked with superior artillery fire from 105mm and 150mm howitzers. The barrage crushed Second Army formations that were assembling in tight ranks for the day's march, forcing it to flee and thereby compelling an exposed First Army to retreat as well. End quote. Now, what Brose is talking about there is that when the Germans crush the French Second Army and it has to retreat, it creates a hole in the line. And that's the most dangerous thing for any of these armies. They want to maintain an unbroken line because if there are places that can be penetrated by enemy forces, those forces can move into those gaps. And then if they turn right or turn left, they're hitting another army in the flank where it's terribly vulnerable. Or they could continue to go deeper into the interior and strike at logistics and supply and rear areas. I mean, the whole point is don't allow you know, a gap to open up in your line and do whatever you can to create or exploit, you know, your enemy doing something like that with their forces. So when Second Army gets smashed and has to retreat backwards, First Army has to go with them just to make sure that the line stays unbroken and nobody can get into our interior. Now, there's a lot of different things you might be able to draw conclusion-wise from what happened, you know, in Alsace and Lorraine where those two armies were hit by the Germans. Joffre decided that this allowed him to see where the Germans were weak. As we mentioned earlier, this is about playing chess without knowing, you know, where the other guy's pieces are. Part of what Joffre's got to do as a commander is some detective work. He has a rough idea how many forces the Germans have. If he can identify, you know, where those forces are, he can start to figure out where the rest are. He figures if he's getting so hammered down in the south on August 20th, and if he believes that general on his flank, the 5th Army general, that keeps telling him the Germans are making a major effort through Belgium, where are all those troops coming from? They have to be pulled from somewhere, Joffre figured. The Germans are weak at that point. He decided that they had been pulled from the German center. So they're strong down in Alsace-Lorraine by Switzerland. They're strong up in Belgium where they've knocked down those forts and they're, they're coming at us like a door on a hinge, so they're weak in the middle. Joffre made a major mistake here, and the major mistake was assuming the Germans would treat their reserve forces the same way the French did. The reserve forces are those forces that are not as competent, not as highly trained as the regular military forces, and the French practice with those forces was to keep them in the reserve. You know, keep them back away from the action. You know, use them to support people when you need more troops thrown in, but don't put them anywhere vulnerable where you could lose the war with inexperienced, you know, not up to standard troops like that. The Germans totally integrated their reserves into their armies and had planned for this for a long time. They were using all their reserves, so they had greater numbers actually involved in all these combats than Joffre's estimations. And this will cost him dearly when he attacks the center of the German line in the Battle of the Frontiers on August 21st, 22nd. And the center is a weird area because if the left is up by Belgium and the right is down by, you know, Alsace-Lorraine and Switzerland, the center is the part where the terrain is hard to fight in. You know, the giant Ardennes forest is there and it's hilly terrain with not a lot of roads, difficult country, right? It's, it's the same country that everyone was so shocked when the Germans came through it with tanks in the Second World War because it was thought to be impenetrable. 
Well, in the First World War, that's where Joffre decides to attack because he's determined that they must, the Germans must be weak there. What's more, this is how he's going to deal now with this sledgehammer issue, if it really exists. He's going to cut it off. He's going to launch his attack at the German center right where that hinge point is, where the door swings between the forces of the Germans that move and the forces of the Germans that stay stationary. There should be a gap. Smash through there, get behind them, drive all the way up until you hit, you know, the North Sea or the English Channel and cut off that sledgehammer head. It's not a bad idea. If you can make it work, it's like judo. You just took that great enemy advantage of so many good troops in one location, they're like a steamroller, and turned it into a negative, because now you're going to cut off the best part of the enemy army, surround it, and kill it, you know, in one place. It's a great idea, if you can make it work. The French were totally incapable at this point in the war of making something like that work, because they hadn't learned what kind of war they were in yet. That's what the Battle of the Frontiers is going to be. This first round of this fight where, where everybody's throwing haymakers and getting smacked on the jaw is going to teach a lot of lessons to people. Joffre will fire more generals in this first month of the war than anybody's ever fired in history. And a lot of the other militaries will do similar things because this is where we find out, you know, which generals can really fight in wartime and which ones are more peacetime kind of generals. And within a couple of months, you'll have much more competent people you know, at the helm in a lot of places, which makes it a little less fun. I mean, right now, it's, you know, the Wild West out here, and you have all kinds of different quality people. Take the Russian generals that we're going to deal with in a minute. I mean, there's variable quality, and, and this becomes a real live fire test for a lot of these people. On the 21st of August and the 22nd of August, um, Joffre launches his big offensive in the Ardennes. He assumes he's running into an inferior number of German forces based on his calculations. He's instead walking into a situation where he's facing almost equal numbers of troops. And they're dug in and waiting for him. And this is where the idea of bayonet attacks and charging machine guns and not digging in with your red pants. I mean, we didn't even mention the fact that none of these armies, none of them, are going into this war with helmets. There are no helmets, folks. They're wearing caps, okay? You know how many people are going to die because of that mistake? This is all kind of when that romance in war gets shot down, literally. I mean, to people of a 19th century sort of worldview and, and attitudes about honor and duty and, and the things that are expected of, for example, officers in the field, this idea of French officers standing up with a sword and you know, white gloves and often the white hat in a storm of steel, in a move that is absolutely suicidal. And those brave people must have known it. Imagine how the soul gets conflicted at knowing to do your duty and live up to the standards and expectations of your countrymen and your people during this time period. You were expected to stand up there and, and essentially face sure death when you might survive simply by laying on the ground and throw away that white hat and just, just kind of, you know, hide behind that tree or whatnot, but it's not permitted. There's a romance and certain standards, and this is a heroic death. This is what the elder von Moltke was talking about, you know, that we quoted earlier where he talked about how perpetual peace was not even a good dream because you lose all these wonderful values that warfare brings out. To him, that officer, those officers, those many hundreds of officers dying on these fields in their white gloves because they wouldn't take cover were doing something beautiful and admirable. Remember, he said in that quote we used, 
that in war man's noblest virtues come into play, courage and renunciation, fidelity to duty, and a readiness for sacrifice that does not stop at giving up life itself. To him, this is like the charge of the light brigade over and over and over again. Modern people look at this as foolish. To us, it's a waste of that officer's life and potential. Use him in a way that will achieve a useful end. If he has to give up his life, sell it more dearly than that. To people of the time period you know, that, that ends really with this war, there was value in what those officers were doing simply by dying like that and upholding the standards, you know, that they were upholding by doing so. A higher fidelity to duty and readiness to sacrifice, as von Moltke said. One of the things that this war changes is that whole view. The people in 1918 at the end of this war would feel very similar to the way we do about how stupid it is to stand up in a hailstorm of steel and just, you know, sacrifice your life for nothing. The generation that does that in 1914, and most of which doesn't make it through the war, um, they had a different way of looking at things, an older way. And that's why this war is often seen as a separation point in history between one world and another. The running into this new world as part of this attack against the giant center of the front through the Ardennes forest and everything comes off sounding like a dry affair um, when historians write about it. Not that they're dry, but listen, history sometimes takes the emotion and the blood and everything out of it. I mean, David Stevenson uh, has a great one-volume work on the war, and here's how he describes these offensives by Joffre and the French to, you know, strike against what is certainly a weak German center, right? He says, quote, The result was a multiple disaster. The French forces entering the Ardennes were weaker than the Germans in reconnaissance cavalry, and on the morning of 22nd August, mist grounded their aircraft. Groping forward in echelon along the few roads through the forest, they blundered not into weaker forces, but into 21 divisions against their own 20. Their 75-millimeter field guns were ineffective in the hilly terrain, and poorly linked by telephone with the infantry, they were no answer to the German machine guns and field howitzers which wreaked havoc, end quote. What does wreaking havoc mean? Historian Peter Hart's book on the Great War has many wonderful first-hand accounts of what these experiences were like, and Hart himself writes about the stumbling into each other that are these battles in the middle of the front through this forested, hilly terrain. Quote, In these battles, few people at any level of command had much idea of what was happening, and for the troops on the ground, it was all utterly baffling. Pre-war tactics seemed to have no impact. Bayonet charges led only to more slaughter, while calling up artillery support was often doomed to failure. He says, Quote, Sometimes the gunners were too far behind, sometimes too close, and caught under fire from the longer-range German guns. Whatever the reason, he writes, the infantry were often left in desperate straits. And then he quotes a captain from the 103rd Regiment who was caught in desperate straits. Quote, My company was sustaining heavy losses. Evidently its action was hampering the enemy, who concentrated the combined fire of his infantry, artillery, and machine guns on us. We were surrounded by a heavy cloud, which at times completely veiled the battlefield from our eyes. Little Burgeyer sprang up, shouted, Vive la France, at the top of his voice, and fell dead. Among the men lying on the ground, one could no longer distinguish the living from the dead. The first were entirely absolved by their grim duty. The others lay motionless. 
The wounded offered a truly impressive sight. The quote continues, sometimes they would stand up, bloody and horrible looking, amidst bursts of gunfire. They ran aimlessly around, arms stretching out before them, eyes staring at the ground, turning round and round until, hit by fresh bullets, they would stop and fall heavily. Heart-rending cries, agonizing appeals, and horrible groans were intermingled with the sinister howling of projectiles. Furious contortions told of strong, youthful bodies refusing to give up life. One man was trying to replace his bloody, dangling hand to his shattered wrist. Another ran from the line, holding the bowels falling out of his belly and through his tattered clothes. Before long, a bullet struck him down. We had no support from our artillery, and yet there were guns in our division and in the Army Corps besides those destroyed on the road. Where were they? Why didn't they arrive? We were alone. End quote. 27,000 Frenchmen will die on the 22nd of August. Many, many more will be badly, badly wounded, maimed, and scarred for life. Now, let's put this in perspective. A hundred years before this time, Napoleon used to brag to his opponents that you cannot stop me. I spend 30,000 lives a month, as though that was a big deal. And back when Napoleon said it, it was. The French had just lost 30,000 lives that day. And their contact against the other major army that had precipitated all those deaths has only been about 24 hours long. What's tomorrow going to look like? And the next day? Already troops were dealing with, you know, a new phenomenon created by this artillery. The bigger heavy guns, the extra ammunition, and the fact that battles are going on for a long time now and people stay in place for a while mean that people are staying under artillery barrage for longer and longer periods of time. This is a frightfully upsetting experience, as you might imagine, and it begins to drive people insane right as the war starts. A French sergeant wrote in his diary about these offensives in the Ardennes on August 21st, 22nd, and he said, quote, the guns recoil at each shot. Night is falling and they look like old men sticking out their tongues and spitting fire. Heaps of corpses, French and German, are lying every which way, rifles in hand. Rain is falling, shells are screaming and bursting, shells all the time. Artillery fire is the worst. I lay all night listening to the wounded groaning. Some were German. The cannonading goes on. Whenever it stops, we hear the wounded crying from all over the woods. Two or three men go mad every day. End quote. A man who will turn out to be one of France's greatest public figures in the 20th century was at these battles too. He had been indoctrinated like everyone else in the romance and the heroism and the ideas of the bayonet charge and the offensive and all these military ideas from another age. It took him one battle to learn the lessons that it would take commanders on all sides in this war quite a bit longer to learn. Lieutenant Charles de Gaulle wrote of these battles and his experience in them, quote, Suddenly the enemy's fire became precise and concentrated. Second by second, the hail of bullets and the thunder of the shells grew stronger. Those who survived lay flat on the ground amidst the screaming wounded and the humble corpses. With affected calm, the officers let themselves be killed standing upright. Some obstinate platoons stuck their bayonets into their rifles. Bugles sounded to the charge. Isolated heroes made fantastic leaps, but all to no purpose. In an instant, it had become clear that not all the courage in the world could withstand this fire. End quote. The machines that had always been important on the battlefields of humankind 
had become the dominant factor. What had become a tool to be used by man was now something that was so devastating in the hands of each other that the entire ideas about warfare that had been in play in most societies during most time periods up till this era are all of a sudden no longer viable. The Battle of the Frontiers, in just a couple of days, manages to completely change the whole complexion of the war. What it seemed to be leading up to a German defeat, all of a sudden looks like maybe the Germans are going to win this war and quickly. Nobody expects the French to lose in a couple of days more than 75,000 men killed and more than 250,000 wounded. That stuns everyone, but the French especially. And you have to understand how many people this is. The Americans still celebrate, you know, in a, in a morbid sort of way, the famous Civil War Battle of Antietam, famously called the bloodiest day in American history in terms of warfare. And partly because it's a civil war and everybody dying on both sides happens to be American. But those casualty levels, for comparison purposes, are about 6,000, a little less than 6,000 dead, I think, and a little less than 20,000 wounded. 6,000 dead, 20,000 wounded compared to more than 75,000 dead and 260,000 wounded in the first couple of days of action on the Western Front. The French are just stunned. And now if you're the German general, put yourself in von Moltke's shoes. Remember the stress we talked about. And all of a sudden you are presented with a dilemma. If you just did this to your opponent and you've stunned them and they're on the ropes and they look like deer in the headlights for a minute, what do you do? Do you stick with the original plan and say, listen, we're not supposed to attack here. We have this sledgehammer going. Stick with the sledgehammer and just let the French recover in front of you because it's part of the plan. Or do you say, as the uncle of von Moltke so famously did, that no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. And look at this as an opportunity, a battlefield opportunity that presents itself. Von Moltke has to make some decisions here, and it becomes another place in the story where historians have argued ever since whether or not he lost the war here. You know, those who didn't believe he lost it earlier in the story, a lot of them believe he lost it here, and a lot of German generals writing memoirs after the war, you know, needle him about this savagely, making bad decisions, weakening the plan. What we all have to understand about the plan, as it's um, normally thought of, and some very good modern historians have done a great job of pointing this out, is that the plan was probably flawed from the get-go and was probably never meant to be implemented in the way a lot of these German generals portrayed it. And even more important than that, evidence seems to show that members of the general staff, maybe von Moltke included, never thought the plan was going to win the war anyway, which means it becomes your plan for starting the conflict. And then once everything's in motion, you know, you look for opportunities. You try to create some, you try to exploit French mistakes. That's traditional generalship, right? It's what the French are doing on their side. And so von Moltke makes some decisions based on having slammed the French so hard. He's got Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria down in the south screaming that now that he's pushed the French back all the way to the French border, why didn't he, why didn't he just slam them? He could collapse the whole southern flank, and if the whole southern flank collapses and you still get the northern flank collapsing because of your sledgehammer, my gosh, you've recreated the Battle of Cannae. It's like the Romans and Hannibal all over again. It's every general's dream. A double envelopment, a total surrounding. I mean, if von Moltke were less of an art uh, fanatic and more of a military um, you know, hobbyist, I would think he would find that irresistible. Who knows? Maybe he's just looking for opportunities to outflank French forces, as historian David Stevenson suggests here. Um, quote, 
Moltke's actions at this juncture suggest that he was determined to protect Germany's territory, whether in East Prussia or Alsace, but willing to strike wherever the enemy seemed weak, rather than staking everything on his right flank. End quote. So the staking everything on the right flank idea is just what you do if no other better opportunities develop. And when Crown Prince Ruprecht suggests attacking the French down in the south again, von Moltke thinks about it and says okay, and agrees to take some forces that would be used to bolster the sledgehammer head and instead use them on the total other side of the flank down south to help Ruprecht in his offensive against the French in the south. So the plan is now being diluted in the minds of the purists. And they may be right. I'm not taking sides. I'm just saying the traditional idea is that, that Moltke screwed up the war here now. And some very good historians are saying not at all. This is what you were trying to do. Uh, look for opportunities and exploit them without losing the war elsewhere, which creates a situation, though, that Moltke himself even says after the war was a mistake. And it involves his attempts to try not to lose the war elsewhere. But again, if you put yourself in his position, it's hard not to do this. Moltke looks at the Western Front, and it looks like it's going pretty well. You know, the Battle of the Frontiers and the, and the Battle in Alsace-Lorraine, all these things seem to show that the Germans are better than the French. As I said in the last episode, this is, in my opinion, one of the great armies of all time. And what they just showed is that they dominate another great army you know, pretty easily. And if you're von Moltke, you could sit there and look at that and go, okay, well, all of our calculations are out the window. Maybe we don't need such dominance in numbers. You know, our quality is such that maybe we could get away with taking a few troops from here and taking them to the east because the Russians are taking towns in East Prussia. And that's what Moltke did. First, he changed the commanders over there. He sacked the guys he was having problems with, and he puts an old retired guy who is more known for the Franco-Prussian War services and, in fact, calls him out of retirement so quickly that he has to put on his old blue uniform because he doesn't have one of the newer gray ones. The blue ones date back to the earlier war. And combines this older retired guy whose name is Hindenburg, Paul von Hindenburg, with the hero from the German point of view of that attack against you know, the Belgian city of Liège and the fortress there who banged on the door of the fortress with the hilt of his sword and took the surrender of the city kind of by himself, sort of, um, Eric Ludendorff. Ludendorff and Hindenburg get this job, are sent to the east to figure the situation out, and then von Moltke sends them these troops, which, you know, historians later said, well, he really needed those troops in the west, he shouldn't have sent them, and he shouldn't have sent them. But he didn't know that. He said after the war it was one of his biggest mistakes. He shouldn't have sent him because it'll turn out that by the time the troops get from the west to the east on the trains, they're no longer needed. Now, again, you know I'm not a historian, although historians debate this and argue about it ever since, so who knows? Maybe we can all take a position on this. But looking at it from the sources that I have, looking at von Moltke's decision here looks like prudence. I mean, the Russians are taking towns in East Prussia, forcing the little teeny German forces that are there to retreat. It looks like they're going to be threatening Berlin. Meanwhile, on the Western Front, it looks like the force you put there to simply keep the French occupied while the killing force maneuvers around their flank may have defeated the French all by themselves. What happens when you beat the French before the killing thing even gets there? And then someone wonders if you can spare a couple of corps for the Eastern Front. I mean, von Moltke supposedly even asks one of the commanders of one of the armies that makes up this sledgehammer swinging gate thing, you know, that flanking force that's the size of Napoleon's Grand Army or the size of the Roman Empire's complete military at its height. 
he asks the commander of Second Army, Von Bülow, can you spare a few corps for the East? And Von Bülow says, yeah. You know why he says, yeah? In part because he just smashed a French army in front of him during the Battle of the Frontiers, which happened to be the poor Fifth Army commanded by that one French general who saw the sledgehammer forming even before the war started, poor General Lenrezic. And because he argues with the high command to let him just shift his army a little bit to protect its flank, some historians think he saved Fifth Army from total annihilation. He does have to retreat, though, move backwards once again to keep in line with the rest of the French forces that are retreating sort of all along the line. Meanwhile, here come the British. Now, this is a source of contention and legend like all this stuff. Isn't it funny how much of this early war is? But the French have been badgering the British since the beginning of the war to move faster, move faster, move faster. We need someone up here on our left flank. It's critical, right? The French throw a few territorial uh, units together, which are like, you know, old men and reservists and stuff, and put them out on the flank just so that there's something out there. But against what's coming, I mean, it's nothing. And so they, they hurry the British up and the British rush up and they, they run into Belgium so that they can take the position on the left flank and protect you know, poor General Lenrezig's army. And before they even get there, Lenrezig's moving the other direction. He's backing up to stay in line with the French armies, exposing the British army's flank. Again, you can read the British historians who've been mad about that ever since, being left in the lurch by the French. What's so funny is I read all these accounts, like uh, uh, the Irishman's account, Lucy's account of, uh, of arriving in France and how much the French loved them and these wonderful welcomes. And then you read other accounts, you know, from later in the war where the soldiers are going, yeah, the French don't much like us. We don't like them. They don't like us. And the leadership in the British army didn't seem particularly pro-French or vice versa. There seemed to be a lot of arguing between them. And then some weird order, although it's totally understandable, by the head of the British military, right before the BEF goes to France, complicates everything. Lord Horatio Kitchener, the um, British legend from the colonial wars. You've never seen a guy like this, by the way. I always look at his picture and wonder what he would look like without that Victorian-era waxed mustache thing he has going. But, but he's, he's a fantastic figure, a character in his own right. But he famously tells the British commander who's going over to France something to the effect of, look, this 70,000 men is 90% of all we have. France and Germany, they've got millions of men in the field. This is our army. Don't lose it. In other words, be careful. The problem is, is he's in a war where men are thrown into meat grinders uh, in very large numbers. The French will lose the equivalent of the British expeditionary force often in this war, in a short period of time. So will the Germans. So the British are moving up into Belgium to have their first real contact with modern war. They fought in South Africa against a bunch of Boer farmers and guerrilla fighters got an idea of what, you know, the, the rifle fire and all that stuff could do. They haven't moved up against an army that can fight like they can fight and that outnumbers them many times over. They stumble into this army at a place called Mons. The battle that's shaping up will be a legendary British battle. It's called the Battle of Mons. And um, it will be mythologized in a very similar way to the Dunkirk affair in the Second World War, you know what that was, right? When Germany smashes France in 1940, the British managed to evacuate their army. Miraculously, every ship that can float comes across, you know, every little rowboat comes across the channel, takes British soldiers away, and the Luftwaffe is held at bay, and, and they can flip the Germans off from across the English Channel and say, ha-ha, missed us. Technically, it's a defeat, right? But you sort of 
uh, portray it and spin it in a way that makes it look like a glorious victory that ends up biting, you know, the enemy in the rear end in the long run. There's some truth to that, right? You can, you can work with that, as the publicists say. The Battle of Mons is very similar. One of those things that's technically, no matter how you look at it, uh, a defeat, but there are heroic narratives that sort of come out of it. To me, it's like the moment where the cloaking device is removed from the German flanking attack. Because up till now, there's been this uncertainty about, is it coming? And, and what strength is it coming in? And how many men are we talking about here? And where exactly is it going? And all these different kinds of things. The British run in to the tip of the spear. They run into the most honored um, of the armies that are involved in this attack, the one that has the the important, most important position, the one that the great Schlieffen famously said uh, that these guys should brush their sleeves against the English Channel, meaning that that's how wide a flanking maneuver they should make through Belgium. They should make it so wide that they actually almost touch. The last man on the right touches his sleeve into the water. And it's commanded by one of these great German generals, a guy named Alexander von Kluck. And von Kluck is one of these guys that's like Heinz Guderian, I think I said, in the Second World War. He's an aggressive general. He's a hard driver. He seizes the initiative. He gets you off balance. He keeps pushing, and he moves. It's all about speed and deadliness when he gets to the place where you don't expect him yet. He's commanding 320,000 men in Germany's first army. Right next to him is Germany's second army, also moving through Belgium, also part of this outflanking maneuver. 260,000 men under von Bülow. Von Hausen, third army below him, has 180,000 men. This is the flanking maneuver. The British run into the German army on the farthest right flank. They only run into a part of it, actually, about 160,000 men who are surprised to find the British waiting for them behind defensive positions along 25 miles of a canal, which we call a defensive obstacle, right? This is something that magnifies the power of the defense because now the Germans have to cross this canal under fire and everything. Now, the British think they're going to face a core of Germans, maybe two. Instead, they're facing four-plus cores, and they're doing it in this kind of anotherworldly setting. Uh, again, Barbara Tuckman's good for this kind of stuff, and she explains... That, you know, you might think that this is like the wonderful Belgian farm countryside and a canal with blue water going through it. But she explains that this is a mining town and the water that runs through this canal is more of a sludge and it's black and it gives off chemical fumes. And she says amongst the flower gardens and vegetable gardens are these slag heaps that are pointed and look like tall witches hats all around the, the landscape. And she says it doesn't look like a bad place for a modern battle. It's gone down in history, though. Uh, with one narrative, and then, of course, as in everything else, you're going to get tired of me here saying this, but as everything else with this war, there's a whole other counter-narrative. The original narrative is the Dunkirk one that, that turns this thing into something that is so legendary that within a year or two, legends, popular legends, will spring up that there are angels on the British side of this battle, which, you know... To me, I wouldn't push that rumor because even though it makes it look like God might be on your side, if you got the angels on your side and you still end up having to move backwards and retreat after the battle, that doesn't speak too well about the fighting power of the particular angels involved. But let's not go there. Let's talk about, you know, the parts we can confirm about this battle. It's a 25-mile front that these 70,000 guys have to hold, most of it behind this canal, as we said. 
and it starts with encounters between cavalry. Because remember, they're trying to use these aircraft, and, and, and the Germans are better than most at it, to, to, to look at things and see things. But every time anything's misty or foggy, they can't see anything from these things. So it's still cavalry that does this job. And while your cavalry's out front trying to be the eyes and ears of your army, the enemy's cavalry is out front being the eyes and ears of their army, and they fight. This is what you normally have. Your reconnaissance forces get into it. And so the first stuff that goes on here is the British eyes and ears encounter the German eyes and ears, and there's some cavalry skirmishes. And John Lucy, our, our Irishman in the BEF, talks about this. He says, you know, we run into our cavalry, and there's some wounded people, but they, they, they beat the Germans in a little cavalry engagement, but the Germans are coming. And so the, the British and his unit all get ready. They, they kind of di scratch them out. Dig would be too strong of a word. Scratch themselves out a little depression in the soil, and they wait for the Germans to arrive. And I should point out something that maybe I'm estimating here, but I would say between 85 and 90 percent of all the accounts you read from soldiers going off to war in 1914, and it doesn't matter which army you choose, most of it is overwhelmingly positive in terms of the emotion that these young men feel going off to war. Now, there are some Russian accounts, especially when, you know, people are pulled off of farms and don't want to go do this. But most of the young men going off to war here are excited. It sounds like an adventure. The full romance of war is still in bloom. To them, this is excitement. Remember, a lot of these people have pretty dreary lives, and now all of a sudden they're caught up in, in, in world affairs that are huge, momentous, biggest thing that's ever going to happen to most of these people, right? And they know it, and they're, they're caught up in the excitement, and they don't have a lot of negative stories yet that have filtered into the public realm, you know, explaining what's happened to the guys who came before you, because there are no guys that came before you. Our Irish-British uh, Expeditionary Force soldier, John Lucy, is moving up towards Moss in the period right around August 22nd, August 23rd, and says that when he first heard the guns, it was a queer, thrilling sort of feeling that it brought on, but it also worried him, but maybe not for the reason we would think of as an adventurous young man who finds all this, you know, interesting and exciting. He had a different reason to be scared. He writes about his unit as he comes up, you know, toward the situation at Mars like this. Quote, we swapped news with the nearest men in the ranks and learned that nothing exciting had happened to the battalion in our absence, except that a line of trenches had been dug as a defensive measure about a mile behind and then abandoned on the orders of a staff officer who wished the battalion to move forward toward the town of Mars, now visible through the slag heaps of many mines on the right front of the marching regiment. This dirty-looking factory town had no particular interest just then for us, until suddenly, above the sound of the tread of our marching feet, we heard the booming of field guns, a queer, thrilling, and menacing sound, about which there were many conjectures, the most popular being that they were French 75s, and that they were giving the Germans hell. This notion greatly depressed us. We should really hurry up now, otherwise we would miss the battle. The French would get all the glory, while we, with our capacity for deadly rifle fire and dash in the attack, would miss that crowning moment of victory, culminating in a sweeping bayonet charge, relentless and invincible, the grand assault that would drive the enemy off the field. So we damned the French for not waiting for us. End quote. There's that romance of war again. The great adventure going to be fun. We're going to be heroes. And it's funny when he first gets to the line, 
he and his men take up positions in what they call knee trenches, these shallow little kind of holes, and they're not too happy to not be moving forward and doing something offensive. But but they sit down there, and then the first shells come by them. And again, they find it more interesting, and they kind of have fun with it. He says, quote, The salvo of shells passed over our heads and burst about 80 yards in the rear with a terrific clattering crash. We were highly interested. More came and still more, all going over. The heads of our curious men appeared above the trenches, looking back to see the bursts. Look, they shouted, a black one, or one only, or four more whites. Some laughingly imagined themselves on duty at rifle ranges at home and shouted advice to the German gunners. Wash out, another miss, and lower your sights. One wag, simulating great terror, cried, Send for the police, there's going to be a row on here. And another in mock despair, Oh, mother, why did I desert you? Then the enemy gunners shortened, and the shells exploded above our trenches, and the men, already taken in hand for exposing themselves, crouched low. So it's getting real, right? But it shows you the attitude that they had at the time. They're having fun with it. It's a great adventure. And you read accounts from every major army of this period. As I said, the Russians have a little bit more people that were sort of dragged into this kicking and screaming. Um, and, and the country people always more than the urban people. But the 20-year-olds who are marching off to do this, it's hard to find accounts where they're dreading it yet. There'll be accounts down the road where, you know, everyone has a good idea where they're going and there's a lot more of planning for your own death and worrying about that kind of stuff. Right now, as I said, John Lucy's worrying about missing the fun. But he doesn't have to worry because the fun's coming to him. Field Marshal Alexander von Kluck is aiming the German First Army, the tip of the spear, right at him. And Alexander von Kluck is like the German general that central casting in the TV Hollywood world would have put together. Scarred face, you know, iron cross, carrying a soldier's rifle and a pistol at the same time while he's walking around, fearsome. There's a great description of him where a French observer, you know, during the early stages of this combat, you know, right around now, ends up witnessing the arrival of von Kluck somewhere and says it reminded him of Attila the Hun. And he said, quote, an automobile drove up. From it descended an officer of arrogant and impressive bearing. He stalked forward alone while the officers standing in groups in front of the villa made way for him. He was tall and majestic, with a scarred, clean-shaven face, hard features, and a frightening glance. In his right hand he carried a soldier's rifle, and his left rested on the butt of a revolver. He turned around several times, striking the ground with the butt end of his rifle, and then halted in a theatrical pose. No one seemed to dare to approach him, and indeed he wore a terrible air." End quote. And as we said earlier, he's like the Heinz Guderian of this war. He's the hard-driving, you know, impetuses everything, commanding 320,000 men, commander of the First Army. And he's going to have problems with German generals who are not as aggressive and hard-driving as he is. It's his army, well, about half of it, that will run into the British at Mons. And the traditional story is that they're in for a shock. Because as we said earlier... The British are good riflemen, but I mean, even this, just so you know, even this is contested 
Uh, in a second, I'll read some stuff about this same battle from the military historian of Britain's Imperial War Museum, who will kind of go after every single point that's traditional in this narrative. But traditionally, Alexander von Kluck's forces in sort of an encounter battle stumble in to the British lines and take it on the chin and are hit by so much rifle fire that is so precisely aimed and so quickly, you know, fired that the Germans supposedly think they're under machine gun fire. John Lucy's very proud of this moment and describes what happens to the Germans thusly, quote, Finally, the shelling ceased, and we put up our heads to breathe more freely. Then we heard conch-like sounds, strange bugle calls. The German infantry, which had approached during the shelling, was in sight and about to attack us. Not a shot had been fired from our trenches up till now, and the only opposition to the Germans had been made by our field gun battery, which was heavily engaged behind us and making almost as much clamor as the enemy shelling. To my mind, it seemed that the whole battalion must have been wiped out by that dreadful rain of shells, but apparently not. In answer, he writes, to the German bugles or trumpets came the cheerful sound of our officers' whistles, and the riflemen, casting aside the amazement of their strange trial, sprang to action. A great roar of musketry rent the air, varying slightly in intensity from minute to minute as whole companies ceased fire and opened again. The satisfactory sharp blasts of the directing whistles showed that our machinery of defense was working like the drill book and that the recent shelling had caused no disorganization. The clatter of our machine guns added to the din. For us, he writes, the battle took the form of well-ordered, rapid rifle fire at close range as the field gray human targets appeared or were struck down. The enemy infantry advanced, according to one of our men, in columns of masses, which withered away under the galling fire of the well-trained and coolly led Irishmen. The leading Germans fired standing from the hip. Let me interrupt him here. Now, that's John Wayne style, walking toward the enemy, shooting from your hip. So they're coming toward the British trenches doing that. The leading Germans, as he said, fired standing from the hip as they came on, but their scattered fire was ineffective and ignored. They crumpled up, mown down as quickly as I tell it, their reinforcing waves and sections coming on bravely and steadily to fall over as they reached the front line of slain and wounded. Behind the death line, thicker converging columns were being blown about by our field guns. He then says... Our rapid fire was appalling even to us, and the worst marksman could not miss, as he had only to fire into the brown of the masses of the unfortunate enemy, who on the fronts of two of our companies were continually and uselessly reinforced at the short range of 300 yards. Such tactics amazed us, and after the first shock of seeing men slowly and helplessly falling down as they were hit, gave us a great sense of power and pleasure. It was all so easy. He says the German attack had to be broken off. Quote, the German survivors began to go back here and there from the line. The attack had been an utter failure. Soon all that remained was the long line of the dead heaped before us, motionless except for the limb movements of some of the wounded. End quote. As a person interested in military history, this era of the conflict is the one most interesting to me because, you know, later in the war, everybody's pretty experienced, you know, with what you're dealing with. It's at this point in the war that everybody's learning the reality of modern warfare at the same time through bloody hard experience. The British Expeditionary Force and von Kluck's First Army are both kind of getting a real initial taste of what the new weaponry can do. And as you heard from John Lucy, the Irish rifleman in the BEF, 
he and his compatriots were actually appalled at how effective and deadly it was. It's a whole different thing, you know, firing at live people than a parade ground. But if you happen to emerge unscathed, it almost seems to, you know, bolster that idea that this is fun, heroic, romantic. Um, Lynn McDonald in her book 1914 quotes a bunch of people who were there, including Lieutenant Chapman, who, as the British are dealing with the battle, tells what's going on to a compatriot of his and says about the repulsing of the German human wave attacks, quote, they came at us over a bank directly in front of us, and as soon as they topped it, we let them have it. The range was 70 yards, so we were firing at them point blank. I've never seen anything like it. Legs, arms, heads, they were flying all over the place. We absolutely smashed them. They simply melted away. Then the blighters got some machine guns into action, and at that distance we were like sitting ducks. So we had to get out of it, and by Jove, it was a close shave. End quote. As though it's a fun story, right? There was a 16-year-old trumpeter, and that's not unusual, going back a very long time. They always would have boys, um, you know, as drummers and trumpeters. And on ships, they'll have, you know, they actually have a position in, in Britain's Navy called first boy, second boy, and they are. They're kids. But a 16-year-old British trumpeter at Moz describes how he just admired what the British were doing. It, it, he never forgot the fire discipline of these riflemen. He says he was sitting there watching an officer count down the range of this advancing gray human wave and getting very nervous as it got closer and closer and closer. And he was saying that the British officer was holding the rifle fire until the Germans got really close and he was counting down the range. Trumpeter Jay Naylor from the 3rd Division reports, quote, He was saying, at 400, at 350, at 300, the rifles blazed, but still the Germans came on. They were getting nearer and nearer, and for the first time I began to feel rather anxious and frightened. They weren't an indeterminate mass anymore. You could actually pick out details, see them as individual men, coming on and coming on. And the officer, still cool as anything, was saying, at 250, at 200. And then he said, 10 rounds, rapid, and the chaps opened up. And the Germans just fell down like logs. I've never seen anything like it. The discipline, the fire discipline of these troops. I've never forgotten that. I was so impressed. As a boy of 16, I was simply astounded. I thought, what a marvelous army we are. The attack was completely repulsed, probably not for long, but it was long enough for us to get the guns away. It saved us. End quote. Now, I probably have more than 20 books sitting around me here, from historians talking about this same event. And it is amazing to go from historian to historian to historian and see the different ways this is viewed, interpreted. Um, a perfect example is Peter Hart's uh, wonderful book. He's a, a historian at Britain's Imperial War Museum. And he's one of those contrarians who says all this is a bunch of nonsense. And let's understand quickly that it's it's normal in wartime for this to happen. There's not a single power involved in the conflict that wants to talk about defeats or bad things. Everybody wants propaganda victories. Everybody wants stuff that helps recruiting. You're looking for stuff that you can play up, maybe, uh, as Peter Hart suggests. That's what this miracle at Mars is. But he shoots down a number of the typical arguments, pointing out that the Germans handled themselves very well. And in fact, if the casualty numbers are what he thinks they are, probably deserve a victory at the Battle of Mons. In fact, the French and the Germans both thought the British were defeated there at the time. He writes, quote, When von Kluck's first army smashed into Smith Dorian's 2nd Corps at 6 a.m. on the 23rd of August, the battle that ensued was to enter British military folklore. 
The myth is one of a heroic, successful defense, with well-trained British Tommies mowing down hordes of Germans, repeatedly attacking in mass formations. Finally, the British would be forced to retreat only because the fickle French had given way on their right flank. This view of the battle is a great yarn, he writes, but like the angels of Mons, at its heart, it is the product of wishful thinking, end quote. He then goes on to deal with every single reality we've talked about in this battle, shooting down each one of them, again, as best he can. It's controversial, but he's a fantastic historian who's qualified to do this. I should like to point out, though, that this was no different, you know, manufacturing a victory or playing up a victory and, and magnifying the very real heroism on both sides. There's not only nothing wrong with that, that's pretty standard behavior for every military and every war you can think of. I mean, for example, he'll say, um, quote, As to the Second Corps being undefeated and forced to fall back only to conform with the French on their right flank, this is pure nonsense. He says the reality is that on many occasions, the Germans seem to have been all too successful in forcing a retreat, end quote. In other words, probably the best army in the world is operating that way in the field. And it's disconcerting if you're on the other side. For example, he says, quote, It is undeniable that several of the British battalions fought well, but modern scholarship has revealed that the Germans maneuvered skillfully to secure a local superiority against the weak points in the British defenses. Wherever possible, they operated against the flanks, forcing the British to fall back or risk being cut off and totally destroyed. Throughout, the Germans seemed to have handled their artillery and machine guns with a great tactical dexterity, born of long practice, operating them in tandem to dominate the British in the firefight, effectively rendering rifle fire of secondary importance. The British were turned out of their defensive positions in a matter of a few hours and even failed to destroy several of the canal bridges. End quote. He then goes on to take issue with the casualties that are often cited, one of the things the British use as claiming that this is a major victory is how many more Germans they killed versus the casualties they suffered themselves. He suggests that even the interpretation of what those casualties are are overblown. Again, this really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Every nation was doing this. For me, what's most interesting is to watch these nations and these militaries try to learn on the fly while they're being shot at and translate years of theory into practice. Um, by the 24th of August, the French will change their mind about this whole idea of, you know, the offensive at all costs when Joffre is forced to say, listen, uh, we need to go on the defensive a while, which is, you know, like heresy uh, a mere, you know, five, six, seven, eight days before. The reality of the situation on the ground is changing everybody's mind about, you know, those tactics we thought before the war were going to be good. Yeah, in practice, not so good. The British, whether you want to believe that they were forced to retire because the French left them in the lurch or whether you want to, you know, believe as uh, Hart does that the Germans were just really quite good at turning flanks and, and, and employing combined arms, as it's called, to, to, to get the British in an untenable position, as it's called. It doesn't matter. The British have to retire just like the French. They have to get out of there. The First Army's um, leader, von Kluck, writes in his memoirs, the British fought excellently, but that if he had been allowed to sweep as widely around the flank as he had wanted to and has, as he requested at the time, the, the British would have been in no position to fight at all. He would have outflanked them and smashed them from the rear. Remember, there will be a lot of finger-pointing after the war over whose fault all of this stuff is, and a lot of the generals who were still alive will write things to defend their reputation. The one thing that you could actively say is going on here, though, is that neither the British nor the French 
were able to stop this movement through Belgium that's coming down on them now, and they're all retiring at speed. And this is the part of this, you know, early war narrative that's known as the Great Retreat. The Great Retreat is a wonderful example of one of those moments where I try to get in the minds of these people. And you know that's a, a fruitless task. I mean, there's no reason to play with history and study history if you don't want to try to do that, but we all have to recognize how impossible it is. But at the same time, you try to put yourself in their shoes. If you are one of the commanders of any of these armies, and you're over about the age of 58, 59, this entire affair is beginning to look horribly familiar to you. If you're on the German side, wonderfully familiar to you. It looks like 1870, 1871. It looks like 44 years ago. It looks like you know, when the Germans managed to surround two entire French armies and get them to surrender. Sir John French, the British commander, is already making plans to get his army to the other side of Paris and then starting to think about the challenges, the logistical challenges of getting the army, the British army, out of France altogether and back to the safety of Britain. He's worried about a completely legitimate threat that the British could end up like two French armies ended up in the last war completely surrounded by the enemy and forced to surrender. Imagine if 90% of Britain's military forces are on the continent and have to give up to the Germans and go into captivity. That's quite a hostage situation you have. Pretty easy to get a pretty good armistice agreement, wouldn't you think, if you're holding 90% of the British army hostage? And French, it's confusing, isn't it, the British commander named French, but French is not confident in the French. He hasn't been impressed you know, with his dealings with them so far. And he's complained a lot to his superior, who I think we said was the military leader in this war, Lord Horatio Kitchener, who happens to be a field marshal. But in fact, at this time, he's a cabinet member, the secretary for war. But Kitchener at times will feel the need to discard his bowler hat and his suit and tie and throw on his field marshal's uniform, jump on a destroyer, go across the English Channel, and, you know, give French a little piece of his mind, bolster his confidence a little bit. But French has a legitimate worry. This great retreat that's going on is an extremely precarious moment because an organized retirement can easily turn into a disorganized, panicked route. And everyone knows that. In fact, only a couple of days after the Battle of Mons, British forces will be required to turn around and beat off German attacks against them, which is wild when you consider that the Germans are trying to catch people that move away from them at the same maximum speed. If you're a military history nut like I am, the one thing that's interesting to follow at this point in the war is something that, that is very unusual in military history. Because if you were going to take a class on military history, this is the point in the war where they would tell you, if you're the Germans, that you need to send out your mobile units now and destroy the enemy. That's why you have cavalry, right? You know, you go talk to a Genghis Khan or any medieval or ancient general in history, and they're going to tell you, go get them. Send your cavalry after them. Harass them. Disorganize them. Never give them a moment's peace. Cut off stragglers. I mean, if you look at where people die in pre-modern warfare, but even modern warfare, they die in the pursuit. The job of the battle is to get the other side to turn and run. And when they turn and run, you crush them. I mean, look at the Iraqi highway of death, right? Where so many Iraqis died fleeing Kuwait. What were they doing? They were fleeing throughout most of human history. The casualties, I mean, Alexander the Great supposedly only suffered less than a thousand casualties in his entire career 
although I don't know if I believe that, but that's that's what some military historians say. And the reason those numbers are so low is because comparatively few people died in the battles. They died while being pursued after the battle. And since Alexander never lost a battle, his troops never had to face that. This is the moment when the German cavalry should be unleashed and finish the job. The problem is, is we have this tiny little window in military history where the cavalry is so vulnerable that even disorganized, which the French and the British aren't, by the way, but even retreating forces can turn around, form a firing line really quickly, and destroy the pursuing cavalry. Add a few howitzers in there, and it will be carnage. Now, in the next war, mechanized forces armor, and aircraft will recreate the ability to do what light cavalry did before this period. But in this weird little interim era, the cavalry can't pursue and destroy forces like this. So the Germans have to do this same job with infantry. The problem is the German infantry's maximum speed is the speed of a marching man, which is the exact same speed of the people they're trying to catch. And yet, nevertheless, and even though the Germans have marched a long way already, they get darn near to catching them several times. In fact, on the 26th of August, the British have to turn around and try to get a little breathing space from these German pursuers by, you know, fighting them again. Can we get them to slow down, cause them to form up and have to reorganize again and get a little, you know, distance between us and them? On the 26th of August, the British, including our friend John Lucy from the BEF, fight another battle with the Germans. This time in about 11 hours, the British suffer 8,000 casualties. Now, 8,000 casualties in the war that's about to happen isn't going to seem like that much. I mean, my goodness, the French have suffered 260,000 wounded in the last few days. But to the British Army, which is historically small, as we said, this is a naval powers army, that's a lot. In fact, when... Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Murray, who's with the general staff behind the lines, is informed of the 8,000 casualties a couple hours later, he collapses, just faints and collapses. And what this shows you, I mean, these are hard-bitten military men, but it shows you the stress and the tension that these people are under. And you add to that the fog of war. No one knows what's going on, and it's happening so quickly. There's a huge amount of stress. A German general shoots himself on August 20th. I mean, all these, I mean, this is the real supreme test. It separates the men from the boys, as the old saying goes. This is the moment of greatest danger. Winston Churchill, who is a high official with the Navy, writes about this period and this retirement, this great retreat, and says, quote, Then came the days of retreat. We saw that the French armies of the right were holding their own, but all the center and left was marching southward toward Paris as fast as possible, while our own five divisions were for several days plainly in the very jaws of destruction. He says, at the Admiralty, we received requests to shift the base of the whole army from Havre to Saint-Nazir, and with this complicated business we had to cope. The process of retreat continued day after day. A seemingly irresistible compulsion was pressing and forcing backwards the brave armies of France. Why should it stop? Would they ever be able to turn? If France could not save herself, nothing could save her. End quote. The Germans are coming toward Paris. And the Allied, soon to be officially Allied armies, are moving back in that direction. Here's the thing, though. Remember the war plan. And you know that the French military leader Joffre has not forgotten the plan. Even if the Germans get within sight of Paris, they're going to lose the war if at the same time that happens, the Russians from the east are marching through the streets of the German capital in Berlin. 
and Joffre and the whole Allied higher command realizes that they're on the way. The war can still be won even with Allied forces in the West retreating. They just have to prolong this conflict long enough to let the Russians smash the Germans in the East, and the war will be over no matter how well the Germans in the West are doing. Enter Hindenburg and Ludendorff, arriving even as all this is going on by train in the East to take command of that one lone German army that's got to hold off the Russian steamroller as it approaches. Now, the Russians' biggest victory at this point is the fact that there's an army there to fight it all. Remember, the entire German pre-war plans assumed a certain speed for everyone's mobilization, and the Russians are, are the slow ones. And here they are, you know, in two weeks, and they're already taking towns in East Prussia. East Prussia, by the way, is this area that was conquered uh, in the 14th, 15th century by the famous Teutonic Knights, which included a, a large proportion of Germanic nobility who eventually will settle down in those areas. And so this is where some of the historic German nobility, you know, has their big estates and everything. The Kaiser himself, you know, this is, this is historic German territory with an abnormal number of the aristocracy there. It's an important area, and it's a gateway to Berlin, and it's not far from Berlin. And the Russians manage within like two weeks of the war start, forget the six weeks that guys like Schlieffen had counted on, within two weeks, they've got half a million men operating in that area. And they've got even more down south against the Austro-Hungarians. And, and it's one of those things where, I mean, there's an author, there's a professor named uh, Sean McMakin who's written a whole book called The Russian Origins of the First World War, where he says the Russians are the ones who should bear the entire lion's share of the guilt for starting this war. They wanted it, they planned for it, and part of the reason that they surprised everybody with their quick mobilization is because they were ready for this war. They wanted it. And they put up two-fifths of their army in Poland, which is right next to East Prussia, ahead of time, so that when the war starts, when they have to mobilize people, they're not coming from all over Russia. There's a ton of them right there. And good units, too. It doesn't make any difference. The Russians are a mess. An absolute chaotic disaster. And, you know, if you look at Russian history, Soviet history too, I mean, you know, just consider that a, a piece of Russian history, that's so traditional it's crazy. I mean, the Russians always start these wars as disasters. I mean, in the Second World War, they can hardly deal with the Finns in Finland, which is crazy when you think about the disparity in everything from resources to size of the numbers of troops, everything. And they can hardly deal with the Finns in you know, the very early part of the Second World War. But six years after the Second World War starts, they're fielding one of the greatest armies in human history. Very typical for the Russians. Takes them a long time to get started, but they can be extremely formidable once they get going. Hindenburg and Ludendorff aren't going to let them get going. When Hindenburg and Ludendorff arrive in the East, remember, these guys are probably a little, what would you call, jet-lagged, train-lagged. I mean, Hindenburg is... 66 or something, and just out of retirement a couple of days. Ludendorff has been on the Western Front since about the start of the war. Remember, he banging on the door of Liège and accepting the surrender there. A couple of days ago, he's helping, you know, push Lanrezic's army back on the Western Front, and now here he is in the East trying to get acclimated to what's going on. There's a lieutenant colonel, which is a pretty low rank for a guy to make the history books like Max Hoffman did, 
on the scene, though, who's an expert on the Russian army and, of course, has been there the whole time. So quickly fills Ludendorff and Hindenburg in on the situation, which is this. There's about a half million Russians nearby and about 175,000 Germans to deal with them. The Russians are divided into two armies, the first and the second army. And they're making their way across a really difficult piece of terrain. It's a series of lakes and forests and marshes and rivers that just is going to make these two armies have a hard time helping each other out, you know, while they're on opposite sides of this big terrain feature. He also tells Hindenburg and Ludendorff that they have a pretty good idea about what the Russians are trying to do because the Russians have been broadcasting radio messages and telegraph messages to each other without using any code. They also find a Russian officer's body after they kill him, and it has the plans on it. In fact, there's so much information that's giving the Russian plans to the Germans that they start to wonder whether or not it's just a ruse. Maybe the Russians are trying to trap us and they're just broadcasting all this to fool us because it's so obvious. I mean, who would make these kind of mistakes? Well, it's not the greatest time in Russian military history. I wrote down a list of 12 mistakes that were made or, or, or areas that the Russians were having terrible problems. And it's not only understandable because of the Russian tradition of starting wars a little chaotically and disorganized, but also because, you know, even the really best armies are trying to figure out you know, how to deal with all this new technology and a hundred years of theory turning into fact. The British and the French and the Germans are all dealing with this on the Western Front. So it's understandable that an army that's um, really not up to those standards is dealing with it all too. In fact, even though the numbers on paper say there's half a million Russians here, they've been leaving guns and soldiers all along the way to get here. I mean, their actual strength when they get to combat is going to be a lot less than it looks like. The logistics and supply situation is disastrous. The troops, in some cases, aren't eating. They have rags instead of shoes on their feet. Some don't have rifles. The two commanders, a guy named Renenkampf will command the first army. Um, the second army is a guy named Samsonov. They hate each other, which is going to be a problem because the plans that the Germans have become aware of through all these different methods, say that the Russians are going to try a pincer movement on them. There's only one German army in the region. So this first army will come from the north. The second army will come from the south. Surround this German army and destroy it. But if the commanders hate each other and the communications is awful and they have to pass this terrain feature for 50 or 60 miles that will keep them from working together, this pincer movement's going to be tough. The German reconnaissance is so much better. I mean, the Russians aren't even using aircraft. The Germans have air, airplanes and zeppelins up there watching what's going on. The Germans have an advantage with railroads because railroads help armies move fast, obviously. But the problem is, is that attacking armies, once they leave their railroads, almost never get the ability to use the railroads in the territory they're going through, whereas the defenders in their own territory can. This is one of those things that makes the defensive more powerful than the offensive in this war. The Germans are able to use railroads to reinforce points where they need to be. The Russians are past their railroads now. They're walking. Finally, the Germans know this country. They know the terrain and they know the geography. This is an area where sometimes the German army conducts peacetime maneuvers. So they set a trap for the Russians, and it's a very Napoleonic strategy indeed. They're going to attack these armies 
while these armies are separated by this terrain and, uh, and unable to help each other and smash them individually. They're going to nullify that disadvantage in numbers. And the Russians, you know, make this a lot easier because they don't know what's going on. They literally are clueless as to what they're facing. And the high command isn't helping the situation. They're telling General Samsonov at the Second Army, listen, uh, we don't see any German forces. We don't expect an attack. I mean, Samsonov's taking his time, blind to what's going on around him, whereas the Germans are moving very fast and seizing areas to the flank and taking up positions and setting a trap. As historians Michael Nyberg and David Jordan, you know, pick up the narrative about springing the trap on the Russian Second Army, they write, quote, Nervous and tense hours followed as the rest of the trap was sprung. By the morning hours of the 28th of August, the Germans had control of almost all the main roads leading to Samsonov's forces. Combat began in the north when a Russian corps, advancing without support, ran into a German corps. The Germans, who were fully aware of the Russian presence and were lying in wait for them, smashed the Russians and sent them reeling back in panic. Surprised at the unanticipated presence of German forces in the area, Samsonov ordered a general withdrawal that night. The full severity of the situation came slowly to him, as he realized that he was completely cut off. His men began to panic, throwing down weapons and running east as fast as they could, only to end up trapped by strong German forces already sitting on their lines of retreat. Confusion and panic reigned in the Russian lines. Without supplies and without communications, panic spread quickly. Renenkamp's forces were more than 70 miles away and would obviously not provide any help at all. On the 29th of August, Samsonov himself gave in to the panic. He told a staff officer, The Tsar trusted me. How can I face him after such a disaster? He then headed off into the woods, where he committed suicide rather than face capture by the Germans. He was one of the lucky ones. Samsonov's powerful army of 150,000 men had suffered one of the most lopsided defeats in military history. More than 30,000 Russians were killed, and almost 100,000 entered prisoner of war camps where they faced a dismal future of forced labor and appallingly bad conditions. The Germans needed 60 trains to move all of the Russian equipment they captured. German casualties were less than 20,000. End quote. The Germans had this fantasy of maybe emulating the famous Battle of Cannae, Hannibal's victory of total encirclement over the Romans in the ancient world, but instead they got that in the east. And right after defeating Samsonov's second army, those troops that had been taken, maybe at great cost, very soon from the western front arrived. Not in time for the initial battle, just as Ludendorff had told Moltke earlier, but in time to take on the first army of Renenkampf, which the Germans then smash with similar nasty casualty numbers. Now, Renenkampf will do a better job of pulling his forces back and saving his army from total destruction. He won't get totally surrounded like the Battle of Cannae, but it doesn't matter. The results are the same. All of a sudden, in shocking fashion, the Germans have removed the threat of the Russians coming in and taking Berlin before the Germans can take Paris. All of a sudden, the whole strategy that the French and British were, you know, delaying and operating under the assumption of if we can just hold on a little longer, the Russians will, you know, solve this war problem for us. All of a sudden, the French and the British are going to have to manage to be victorious on the Western Front if they want to save themselves. That helps not coming from the East. In the West, as the Great Retreat continues, you know, you begin to see 
what the level of human suffering is going to be in this conflict. And I have to keep reminding myself about this. You know, the old Joseph Stalin line is so true. One death is a tragedy, a million deaths a statistic. And these numbers that we will constantly throw out in this conflict, which are enormous numbers, they fail to register after a while. You become numb. I mean, take what the last several days on the Western Front have done to France. As we said, 75,000 dead, more than 250,000 wounded in a couple of days. How would our modern medical establishment deal with a crisis like that? You forget what it's like on the ground. That's why you need these reports that come from people who were there. In one of the most famous books ever written about the war, it's called Now It Can Be Told, a British reporter named Philip Gibbs went over to the continent right when this whole conflict breaks out, and he reported from it you know, during the Great Retreat. Now, what he reported that made it into the media is not what he put in the book, because what he put in the book he, he couldn't tell during the war. This is the kind of nasty stuff that none of the governments would allow to be published because it was too raw and too real. That's why Gibbs named his book, Now It Can Be Told, because after the war he wrote it. And he describes the conditions during the Great Retreat and the human suffering, and he reminds us, you know, what it means to have that level of death and destruction and injuries and what kind of injuries we're talking about. Remember, this is like having, what, five, eight football stadiums? worth of people in a few days injured, and we're not talking about hangnails and sprained ankles here. Gibbs wrote in August 1914 for publication later, quote, Through Amiens at night had come a French army in retreat. There were dead and wounded on their wagons. Cuirassiers stumbled as they led their tired horses. Crowds of people with white faces, like ghosts in the darkness, stared at their men retreating like this through their city and knew that the enemy was close behind. Nos sommes perdus, whispered a woman and gave a wailing cry. People were fighting their way into railroad trucks at every station for hundreds of miles across northern France. Women were beseeching a place for the sake of their babies. There was no food for them on journeys of 19 hours or more. They fainted from heat and hunger. An old woman died and her corpse blocked up the lavatory. At night they slept on the pavement in cities invaded by fugitives. At Fernay in Belgium and at Dunkirk on the coast of France, there were columns of ambulances bringing in an endless tide of wounded. They were laid out stretcher by stretcher in station yards, 500 at a time. Some of their faces were masks of clotted blood. Some of the bodies were horribly torn. They breathed with a hard snuffle. A foul smell came from them. At Chartres, they were swilling over the station hall with disinfecting fluid after getting through with one day's wounded. The French doctor in charge had received a telegram from the director of medical services. Make ready for 40,000 wounded. It was during the first battle of the Marne. It is impossible, said a French doctor. 400,000 people were in flight from Antwerp, into which big shells were falling, as English correspondents flattened themselves against the walls and said, God in heaven! 250,000 people coming across the Scheldt in rowing boats, sailing crafts, and rafts invaded one village in Holland. They had no food. Children were mad with fright. Young mothers had no milk in their breasts. It was cold at night, and there were only a few canal boats and fishermen's cottages, and in them were crowds of fugitives. The odor of human filth exuded from them, as I smell it now, and it sickens me in remembrance. End quote. This is a human tragedy of monumental proportions. 
and I have to keep telling myself it's just getting started. The French have lost in a couple of days what the United States, more than the United States, lost in terms of killed and wounded in the 10-year involvement they had in the Vietnam War. In a few days. That right there should put the lie to the idea that the French are somehow, to quote, um, you know, one American, surrender monkeys. They're not surrendering. They're standing and dying on French soil, um, you know, for the sake of just buying their comrades a little extra time. France is showing not only that the French can take a punch, which I think everyone at this time period was fully aware of, but that modern nation states can. It's a mixed blessing, though. In the same way that boxers say that a clean, early, quick knockout is more merciful than a long, punishing fight, there are historians who say maybe it would have been better for European culture, civilization standards, their golden age, if you will, if the Germans had just won this war quickly. You would have had sort of a changing of the guard of the great powers, the Germans moving into a more prominent position. Remember, they're a new country, only about 44, 45 years in existence, and they've been moving up the you know, power chart ever since, with a bullet, as they say in radio, but it works here too. Maybe this just seems like a natural progression of things. And if you could save all the casualties that we know are coming in a multi-year-long carnage fest, which we'll get to later, and maybe save countries from communism and Nazism, maybe prevent a second world war and a cold war after that. I mean, the dominoes that fall, if you talk about this war maybe ending here, well, you can play that game forever, can't you? But you can see, knowing how bad it's going to get and how bad it already is, why some historians have wondered how anything, you know, wouldn't be better than what they're going to experience. If you're French, you may say to yourself, we would never have wanted to live under the German boot. You know, victory was all important. Yeah, but what if you could have all those Frenchmen who die in the rest of the story back? What if you can avoid the Second World War? I mean, when does it become worth it? Same thing to the Germans. I mean, you look back and you say, what if we could have those people back? What if we could have that wealth back? You know, what if we could have that time you know, where we were in 1900 back. That's called crying over historical spilt milk, but it doesn't prevent historians from doing that all the time. And it has even less of a inhibition on people like yours truly who aren't historians at all. The question of what decision should have happened is obviously a historically moot point. The question of what's going to happen is about to be determined now. And one of the things that sort of makes this battle what it is that's shaping up, if battle's even the right word for it, is that everybody kind of knows it's coming. It's either coming or the war's over. Basically, the Germans are moving forward across almost the entire line, and the French and British are moving backwards across almost the entire line, and at some point they've got to turn around. They've got to make a stand. They've got to punch the Germans in the nose or there's nothing that's going to stop them. And the problem is, is that everybody's at the end of their rope. Everybody has been marching and fighting for days. These units that weren't missing a buckle, you know, in parades across Belgium as the Germans started this war are missing a heck of a lot more than that, as are the other Allied armies. This is why it's so important if you can actually get fresh troops into the combat who don't look the way, you know, for example, these soldiers that have been in contact now for almost two weeks look, At one point during his inspections, Joffre's riding around and he runs into some French soldiers and Barbara Tuckman describes the experience, quote, On this same day, August 30th, Joffre visited the front of the 3rd and 4th armies to look for forces he could assign to Foch, another French general. Tuckman continues, 
On the road, he passed the retreating columns who had fought in the Ardennes and on the heights of the Meuse. Red trousers had faded to the color of pale brick. Coats were ragged and torn, shoes caked with mud, eyes cavernous in faces dulled by exhaustion and dark with many days' growth of beard. Twenty days' campaigning seemed to have aged the soldiers as many years. They walked heavily, as if ready to drop at every step. Emaciated horses with bones sticking out and with bleeding harness sores, sometimes dropped in the shafts, were hurriedly unharnessed by the artillerymen and dragged off to the side of the road so as not to obstruct the way. Guns looked old and blistered, with barely a few patches of their once new gray paint showing through the mud and dirt. End quote. Our Irish friend from the BEF, John Lucy, entitles a whole chapter of his book, Sleep Marching. And he talks about how there were people that would just stop at the side of the road and not care if the Germans were going to capture them. They wouldn't move for anything. Everybody was exhausted. And, you know, we had talked about how the Russian supply and logistics and all that was falling apart because they you know, weren't one of the best armies out here trying to cope with the new modern realities. Well, the Germans probably are the best army trying to cope with the new modern realities, and their logistics aren't keeping up either. I mean, a perfect example is the number of shells that they're using and the number of bullets they're using is so far greater than anything anyone had predicted that they're running out. They're rationing. Some of these generals are, are limited to a few shells a day for their gun. It makes it very difficult to fight the kind of battles that, you know, on paper, the German pre-war plan had sort of depended on. This is where the operational plans designed before the war, whether you want to call them the Schlieffen Plan or the Schlieffen-Moltke Plan or just whatever it was the German generals thought they were going to do, doesn't ever take into account enough the human element and the variables. It's wonderfully planned and, you know, T's crossed and I's dotted, but there are things you just can't know. You can't know how tired people are going to get how quickly. You can't know how many times they can fight battles before they can't fight anymore. And you can't predict when there are going to be things like holdups in food and supplies. The Schlieffen-Moltke plan, or whatever you want to call it, is falling apart due to the human variables. The number one human variable is Kluck and von Bülow's first and second army troops cannot march 15 or 20 miles a day every single day while fighting battles and getting far ahead of their supplies and not eating. I mean, they're just, they're worn down. By the time they reach this stage in the war, these vaunted, you know, tips of the spear are worn down to a dullness. In fact, they're almost down to 50% strength. What's more, remember, they've had units pulled from them, you know, for over the last several weeks. Moltke took some and put them down south and gave them to Prince Rupert. He, he sent a couple to the east to help against the Russians. Just when you kind of want some nice, fresh troops to throw into this thing, they aren't there. The troops you do have, though, are very excited about the prospect of ending this war and capturing Paris. A member of von Kluck's staff talks about how getting nearby Paris has re-energized exhausted men. Quote, Our soldiers are worn out. For four days they've been marching 40 kilometers a day. The ground is difficult. The roads are torn up. Trees felled. The fields pitted by shells like strainers. The soldiers stagger at every step. Their faces are plastered with dust. Their uniforms are in rags. One might call them living rag bags. They march with closed eyes and sing in chorus to keep from falling asleep as they march. The certainty of victory close at hand and of their triumphal entry into Paris sustains them and whips up their enthusiasm. Without this certainty of victory, they would fall exhausted. They would lie down where they are, 
to sleep at last, no matter where, no matter how, and to give their bodies a drunkenness like that of their souls, they drink enormously. But this drunkenness also helps to keep them up. Today, after an inspection, the general was furiously angry. He wanted to put an end to this collective debauch. We've just persuaded him not to give severe orders. It is better not to be too strict. Otherwise, the army could not go on at all. For this abnormal weariness, abnormal stimulants are needed. In Paris, we shall remedy all this. End quote. Indeed, when they saw signs saying that Paris was you know, 20, 22, 23 miles in the distance, it was as though they'd been given a B-12 shot. One German officer on September 3rd wrote, quote, One of our battalions was marching wearily forward. All at once, while passing a crossroad, they discovered a signpost on which they read, Paris, 37 kilometers. It was the first signpost that had not been erased. On seeing it, the battalion was as though shaken up by an electric current. The word Paris, which they have just read, drives them crazy. Some of them embrace the wretched signpost, others dance around it. Cries, yells of enthusiasm accompany these mad actions. This signpost is their evidence that we are near Paris, that without a doubt we shall soon really be there. This notice board has had a miraculous effect. Faces light up. Weariness seems to disappear. The march is resumed, alert, cadenced, in spite of the abominable ground in the forest. Songs burst forth louder. End quote. One can only imagine the disappointment those soldiers must have felt, and probably a little bit of bewilderment, when on August 31st, they change course. And instead of heading toward Paris, they make a sort of a left-hand turn so that they're going to march by Paris, and they're going to see it on their right. And supposedly, according to the accounts, some of von Kluck's soldiers were able to see the Eiffel Tower in the distance. Imagine the confusion and disappointment and... There must have been some bewilderment, like, what are we doing? There's Paris. We're, we're right there. Believe me, the government in Paris realizes it. On September 2nd, they flee. They head to Bordeaux, which is as far away as you can get from where the Germans are without, you know, not being in France anymore. It's on the Atlantic coast, basically, the Bay of Biscay. So they leave. A lot of refugees leave. And these soldiers who think, okay, the city's basically wide open for us and we're heading in a different direction. This turn by these soldiers in a different direction will create a million questions and a million opportunities, and it will make this story almost impossible to understand if you're even able to follow it to this point. The battle that is shaping up here is the most complicated I've ever encountered. It takes forever to really try to understand this, and then once you think you've got it, you can't figure out how to explain it to anyone. It doesn't even really meet the definition of battle at all. But let's understand why it's possible. Remember, we've been comparing this little conflict here to a heavyweight fight. And, you know, they often have three knockdown rules, which means, you know, if you're knocked down three times in any one round, the fight's over. The French at this point have been knocked down twice in the first round. There's nothing seemingly to keep it from happening again, except that giant of a man who comes into his own now, you know, the First World War's version of the Second World War's Churchill, but for France, Joseph Joffre. And this is where he makes his name. This is his moment in history. This is his destiny right here. You know, as Churchill had said, I felt like I had lived my whole life just for this moment. Joffre is exactly what France needs now and what they missed in 1940. 
This is when he takes charge and performs miracles. And as one of his generals later said, I don't know what we would have done without him. As we said earlier, it's possible they're only in this situation because of poor decisions by the guy earlier during the blind chess-playing side of this thing. But now when everyone's panicking and the French government is moving as far away as they can and the British commander on the scene is pretty sure the war's already over and is worried about how he gets his army out of here and the Kaiser's slapping everybody on the back and as Churchill says, is in a hurrah mood. I mean, everything looks really good for the Germans at this point and the French could easily lose heart here except Joffre is taking charge and starts by firing generals that aren't. Within about a week or 10 days, he fires 140 of them, two of five army commanders, nine corps commanders, 38 of 82 divisional generals, and he's replacing them with much, much better people. He even said, you know, a lot of these guys were great professors and they taught at the academy well. In other words, good peacetime generals. He's replacing them with people who've already demonstrated in this short period of time that they can get the job done. They're fighting generals. Their names are famous. They're Foch, they're Patan, they're Galliani. And they're going to help him, you know, turn the tide here as soon as they get some troops to work with. And that's what Joffre does next. He gets involved in figuring out ways to get troops to the crucial points in the battle. He changes his strategy right after the Battle of the Frontiers, you know, to have all this offensive operations. He has people sit down, you know, hold off the Germans on the defensive while he figures out a way to get enough troops to the important place to make things happen. And during all of this, the guy is absolutely freakishly calm which is exactly what France needs at this time. Remember, we said the art of generalship is kind of bringing what qualities you bring to the table to bear at the right time. And of course, there's a little luck involved in that too. But this is Joffre's time. And while all the panic was going on, as G.J. Meyer says, Joffre was imperturbable. Quote, But in the midst of it all, Joffre remained impassive, maddeningly silent, calm, no matter how alarming the situation, how terrible the emergency, the tall and rotund Generalissimo never seemed disturbed. He became famous for the care he always took to have a good lunch, followed by a nap, end the day with a good dinner, and always get a full night's sleep, in bed at nine, back to work at five, even when things seemed to be at their worst, Meyer writes. He made his staff understand that under no circumstances was his rest to be disturbed, but between mealtimes and bedtimes, he was steadily on the move, using a big touring car driven by a Grand Prix racing champion to make repeated visits to his generals, especially those on the left, meaning the left flank. Thus, he was able to keep himself in touch with events and observe his subordinates in action, end quote, and fire a lot of them, obviously. But what this is doing is steadily creating you know, better leadership in key positions, learning from mistakes and taking real-time knowledge, not theory, and applying it, and taking men who could inspire troops in hopeless situations. Of course, Joffre doesn't command all the generals in this war on his side. He's fighting a coalition battle, and there's a British army that makes up a part of his battle line that is hesitant about involving itself in anything involving combat at the moment. Sir John French, the ironically named leader of the British Expeditionary Force, doesn't trust the French. 
He thinks he's already had his flank exposed once and been put in great danger. He doesn't see any evidence that the French can be trusted to win this war. I mean, the Germans have basically thrown uh, the Schlieffen plan, if there ever was one, out the window here and attacked along the entire Franco-German border, which is that area that is so well protected by French forts that the Germans thought it worth violating Belgium's neutrality and bringing the British into the war just so they could avoid that area and those forts. Well, now, you know, three weeks into the war, they're attacking along that entire front, and if they break through, they will completely surround the French and destroy their armies. The problem is, is that those forts were originally avoided for a reason. They're formidable, and all of a sudden, the French troops in that area are doing a pretty decent job on the defensive. They're still losing lots of people, but all of a sudden, they get a chance to find out that this war that we're going to call the First World War is the one where the defense has the temporary dominance over the offense. And the French, in the last battle only days ago, were doing bayonet charges and advancing in close order and all those things you're not supposed to do, standing up during the shrapnel attacks. Now they get a chance to be the ones behind the machine guns and behind the field guns firing behind them into Germans advancing in the open while the French gunners dig themselves little holes that are almost deep enough to be called trenches already and see what the power of defense means, you know, for them. The good news is they don't get overrun by Germans. The bad news is it looks like they can spare a few troops, which is what Joffre is doing now. This is where the real miracle comes in. The guy can scrounge troops from everywhere. He pulls them off of the line in all these battles near the French fortress line where the French need every man they've got, and Joffre's taking people anyway. He needs them elsewhere more. He's taking newly returned wounded back. He's got, you know, colonial troops coming on boats. He's taking people from the far west of France, and he's, he's using the rail system to get them to important concentration points fast. He creates a new army he calls the 6th, and he puts it over by the the flank of the British Expeditionary Force. He creates another one called the Ninth. He puts it over as a reserve kind of by Paris. He doesn't want to have an army in Paris, which is a great fortress, actually, but the government of France makes him have one, so they put um, Joffre's old commander, Gallieni, um, in charge of it and put him in Paris, and basically everyone thinks he's just going to stay there and, you know, man the walls with his men. That's the plan anyway, theoretically. And day after day, more French trains are arriving and more troops are, you know, detraining and moving over to the front over by Paris facing, you know, the projected direction that this sledgehammer is going to fall. And remember, they're losing troops every day. They're down to half their original strength. And here's Joffre every day bringing in more French troops to face it. All of a sudden, the numerical advantage begins to diminish. And then on August 31st, aircraft, yes, Aircraft, again, starting to make an impact already in this early 20th century war. Aircraft notice that the Germans have changed direction. The same thing we told you that those troops must have been bewildered by. All of a sudden, they're not heading toward Paris anymore. What's going on? And more importantly, when they change direction, they present their flanks to the you know, newly created forces, especially the one in Paris. There's a chance for a counterattack here, a chance to turn around, you know, the entire great retreat and attack. Joffre needs to convince Sir John French of the BEF that now's the time, the opportunity's there, we need you. And he gives one of these great speeches. This is the way he recorded it himself. And remember, Sir John French doesn't speak French and Joffre doesn't speak English. And the translator 
is another British general, a guy named Wilson, who's much more diplomatic and likes the French much more than Sir John French does. And so there's some fun moments there, too. Here's what Joffre's own account of his encounter with French to try to convince him that now was the time to strike. This was our opportunity. It's the last chance. All the cards are on the table. Shows that there was another side to this man. He wasn't just the impenetrable obelisk where you couldn't figure out what that placid look on his face meant. Sometimes he could be positively Churchillian, and this was one of them. He told French, a suspicious and pessimistic French, quote, I put my whole soul into the effort to convince the field marshal. I told him that the decisive moment had arrived and that we must not let it escape. We must go to battle with every man both of us had and free from all reservations. So far as the French army is concerned, I continued, my orders are given, and whatever may happen, I intend to throw my last company into the balance to win victory and save France. It is in her name that I come to ask you for British assistance, and I urge it with all my power I have in me. I cannot believe that the British army will refuse to do its share in this supreme crisis. History would severely judge your absence. Then, as I finished, carried away by my convictions and the gravity of the moment, I remember bringing down my fist on a table which stood at my elbow and crying, Monsieur le Marshal, the honor of England is at stake. Up to this point, French had listened imperturbably to the officer who was translating what I'd said, but now his face suddenly reddened. There ensued a long, impressive silence, and then with visible emotion he murmured, I will do all that I possibly can. Not understanding English, I asked Wilson what Sir John had said. He merely replied, The field marshal says yes. I had distinctly felt the emotion which seemed to grip the British commander-in-chief. Above all, I had remarked the tone of his voice, and I felt, as did all the witnesses to the scene, that these simple words were equivalent to an agreement signed and sworn to. Tea, which was already prepared, was then served. End quote. Barbara Tuckman, of course, relates it a little bit more dramatically. She says that a tear welled up in Sir John French's eye and it rolled down his cheek before he said, I don't know how to tell him. Just tell him we'll do everything we can. It's one of those critical, dramatic moments in history. And when you want that, you want the guy who would have been the real best first host of hardcore history, I think. If it weren't H.G. Wells, it would have to be Churchill, wouldn't it? And in his... um account of the First World War, which, you know, is full of Churchillian bias, all, all the things that you normally get with him. But what's fun about it is, is no one explains it like he does, even with the biases. And he was there. Churchill's histories are always a combination of romance, um, history, and if he's in them, you know, personal memoir too. I love the way he sort of explains how many things had to line up right all along, you know, the war for this opportunity to be presented to the general in Paris who sees von Kluck's first army turn their flank to him. Here's how Churchill puts it, quote, Assuredly, no human brain had conceived the design, nor had human hands set the pieces on the board. Several separate and discrepant series of events had flowed together. First, the man, Galliani, is on the spot. Fixed in his fortress, he could not move toward the battle so the mighty battle has been made to come to him. Second, the weapon has been placed in his hands, the army of Manori. It was given him for one purpose, the defense of Paris. He will use it for another, a decisive maneuver in the field. It was given him against the wish of Joffre. It will prove the means of Joffre's salvation. Third, the opportunity. 
Kluck, swinging forward in hot pursuit of, as he believed, the routed British and demoralized French, will present his whole right flank and rear as he passes Paris to Galliani and Manori in his hand. Observe, not one of those factors would have counted without the other two. All are interdependent, all are here, and all are here now. Galliani realized the position in a flash. I dare not believe it, he exclaimed. It is too good to be true. But it is true, Churchill writes. Confirmation arrives hour by hour. He vibrates with enthusiasm. End quote. This is what sets up the famous Battle of the Marne. The most complicated battle you'll ever find. The Battle of the Marne is so hard to understand for a couple of reasons. The first one is, just like the Battle of the Frontiers that just recently happened, these World War I battles are modern in scale and scope. They are so much larger and so much longer than battles in the past were. I mean, a hundred years ago, Napoleon is being defeated at Waterloo, a giant battle involving three global powers, and you could drive from one end of the battlefield to the other in no time. You could see one side from the other with those little telescopes that they would just put to their eye. The battle started in the morning and was over at the end of the day. I mean, that's a hundred years ago. Now the battles last for, well, this one will last for officially a week, but really last longer than that. The battlefield is at least a hundred miles long, depending on who you believe, or the entire front, you know, according to other historians. You could legitimately have fought at the Battle of the Marne and not know it. Turn to a buddy that fought there with you and say, now, were we at the Marne? Was, was our fighting officially part of that or not? Because really, it's a catch-all term for all the fighting that is going on when what really the Marne is all about happens, which is that the Great Retreat ends and the French and British armies turn around and launch into contact again. Now, to be fair, there are, there are parts of the front that have never not been in contact. In the South, they've been fighting pretty much since minute one, and it's never stopped. That's why if you told them that they were in the Battle of the Marne, they might not even understand it because they've never not been fighting. Historians like Eric Brose suggest that the Battle of the Marne is everything that was fought in this one area, you know, from the center of France up. He describes it this way, quote, what has come to be known as the Battle of the Marne should really be thought of as the Battle of France. For altogether 56 Allied and 43 and a half German divisions engaged one another in a titanic struggle along a line stretching from Paris to the eastern frontier. End quote. In a sense, what really happened is the opportunity that was presented by an open flank, as we said, von Kluck's first army turns, shows his flank to Paris. Paris now has an army that can hit him in the flank, and here we're going to have a battle. But that just becomes the opportunity that everybody was waiting for before they turned these armies around anyway. This had to happen at some point. This is France's last throw. Everybody knows that this has to occur. The problem is, is that the commanders who are actually with the troops, not these guys at the general headquarters and at the highest staff officers, the ones who are marching with the actual soldiers are appalled that this is being considered, with the exception of a couple notable commanders. I mean, one commander, one general, supposedly looks like he'd been hit in the head with a club when somebody said that they were going over to the attack. His troops have been retreating for days and days and days at an amazing pace. Their clothes are in rags. Their weapons hardly fire. Their shoes are falling off their feet. They can't stand because they're so sleepy. And then you get the word that you're going to attack. But several of these French generals that 
Joffre has put in command are tough, hardcore fighting generals. I mean, Ferdinand Foch says right, you know, during this encounter, quote, attack, whatever happens, the Germans are at the extreme limit of their efforts. Victory will come to the side that outlasts the other, end quote. The French general who takes over from Lanresic at the Fifth Army when Joffre fires him famously comes to the phone like one second after he takes command, hears from a commander on the scene that says it's impossible. His troops are falling down, tired. They can't march. And he says, march or die. And Joffre issues his famous notice to the armies when he tells them that the great attack is beginning. And it's a classic stand or die exhortation. This is France leaving it all on the table. Joffre announces the turnaround and the attack really the recommencement of contact along the entire battle line. And we've seen how deadly on a day-to-day -day basis contact with the enemy in 20th century warfare is. He announces it thusly, quote, We are about to engage in a battle on which the fate of our country depends, and it is important to remind all ranks that the moment has passed for looking to the rear. All our efforts must be directed to attacking and driving back the enemy. Troops that can advance no farther must, at any price, hold on to the ground they've conquered and die on the spot rather than give way. Under the circumstances which face us, no act of weakness can be tolerated. End quote. When the general in charge of Paris, Galliani, and I think I've pronounced his name differently every time I've said it, but Galliani famously is asked by the general of Sixth Army what their plans are if they're overrun. You know, what if Paris gets overrun and the enemy overruns us? Where are we going to go? And Galliani looks at him and just says, nowhere. This is it. Imperial War Museum oral historian Peter Hart describes the crux of the Battle of the Marne about as well as anyone can in a short space of words. Uh, he says, quote, what followed was a complex battle that defies easy explanation. By this time, the German right wing was actually outnumbered by the French divisions rushing up from the south. As the German 1st Army tried to turn to face the assault from the French 6th Army along the line of the River Ork, a huge chasm of some 30 miles opened up between von Kluck and the 2nd Army on his left flank. Amidst the chaos, the men of the BEF, having dutifully about turned, found themselves advancing alongside the French 5th Army into the gap between the German 1st and 2nd Armies. There was no great battle, no huge drama, but the penetration between their armies threatened utter disaster for the Germans. And on the 9th of September, von Moltke ordered his right wing to retreat. End quote. Now, Peter Hart's a great, reputable modern historian, and that's about as, as wonderful a passage there as you could ever hope to get from one of those folks. But see, if they would jettison some of their wonderful historiosity and throw a little grandeur and drama, um, maybe little exaggerations and romance in there, you could get something like this from Churchill, who describes the same thing as only he can. And he says this about the British army, along with the French, advancing into this crucial gap that will change this whole conflict and turn the Battle of the Marne, which, let's be honest, the French are once again taking it on the chin when they're in full contact with the fabulous German army. This is what will decide the occasion, though. And Churchill puts it in Churchillian terms, quote, 
No human genius planned that the British army should advance into this gap. A series of tumultuous events had cast them into this position in the line. When they advanced, there was a gap in front of them. On the whole front, it was the line of least resistance. Along it, they bored and punched, and it led into the strategic vitals of the German right wing. High destiny, blind fate regulated the none too vigorous but nevertheless decisive movements of this British army. It marches on, wondering what has happened to the monster which has pursued it with whip and yell since Mons. Von Bulow finds his right wing being rolled back by the 5th French army, and himself cut off continually from his right-hand comrade Kluke by the British advance. Kluke, just as he's got himself into a fine position to fight Manouri, finds his left and all the rear of his left hopelessly compromised and exposed. End quote. It's a crazy moment. It reminds one of, of, of warfare in the 18th century. They used to call it positional warfare, where a lot of the fighting was simply trying to, you know, march around a flank or, or get to a point where you forced your enemy into a place where they had to retreat just because of positioning. By accident, as Churchill so eloquently put it, the British army had almost accidentally probed its way into the German liver doesn't get much better than that in terms of the high drama, does it? And it completely obscures, you know, the soldier's perspective on the ground, of which we have very little. More and more first-hand accounts, especially from the German side, will be made available as the war goes on. I keep having to tell myself that a lot of the people fighting in these battles will never make it home to write their memoirs. These are people who don't get to go home until either the war is over or they're so vitally injured they can't fight anymore. And a lot of the German soldiers on this front who might leave memoirs that someone like yours truly might be lucky enough to have translated into English leave their bones on some of these battlefields. Nonetheless, you know, one thing's clear. I remember reading an account once, and there's lots of accounts like these, and you can specifically find them in publications that came out not long after the war. I remember, I have one in my house actually, and many of you do too. It's in a great series of books written just after the war. And you read it and it's an account of this unbelievable battle. It sounds like something out of the Lord of the Rings or some Napoleonic thing with charges of, you know, 10,000 cavalry mowed down by cannons, these amazing heroic moments, German heroism, French heroism, really thrilling, moving stuff. And it turns out that that's just one of the little battles well, I mean, comparatively, that formed something called the Battle of Nancy. The Battle of Nancy is just something that formed a part of the Battle of the Marne. There are individual stories, many battles whose names have been forgotten by almost everyone, that form the whole here. The Battle of the Marne is a human tragedy, as we said earlier about what the civilians are suffering on a mass scale, and the drama and the suffering and the heroism and the stories that would break our hearts if we knew them are going on up and down the line from Switzerland to the Belgian border. In fact, they're going on in the Eastern Front, too. We haven't even talked about the simultaneous events that are happening. While this is going on, the armies of Ludendorff and Hindenburg in the East are wrapping up their conflict there against Renenkamp's army after Tannenberg in Galicia, which is over kind of where Austro-Hungarian, Poland, and Russian interests meet. There are terrible battles going on. The Austro-Hungarians are getting smashed in a way that they will never recover from, and this is all happening at the same time. Part of what makes this conflict so disorienting for everyone who's facing it is how quickly it's all happened. When you think about the Second World War, for example, realize 
that there's no big fighting between the major powers for about eight months after the Second World War is declared. Hitler goes into Poland. Poland falls fast. I mean, that's all quick and relatively painless by World War standards. It'll be eight months before the Germans are in, you know, real big contact with French and British armies. This war is three weeks old, and all the major participants have clashed head-on. There's more than a million people dead. This is the worst nightmare of every pre-war prophet predicting, you know, what was going to happen when you combined the mass armies that the Napoleonic era unleashed, on steroids, by the way, with the modern technology and weapons and systems that were being developed all through the 1800s. This is a great filter. When you lose more than a million people in the first blink of an eye and the war is now obviously going to last a while, how many people are going to die before this thing reaches a resolution? What is a resolution? Again, to simplify it, what really happens is when the entire French and British line turns around and smashes back into the German line, there's one spot where they just penetrate. There's nothing really in front of them, and that's the spot that the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, and some French forces go through. And see, had von Kluck and von Bülow not already been fighting somebody, they could have turned and crushed these forces that were penetrating into that gap. But they are fighting other people. That's known as pinning the enemy. Kluck is fighting those forces that are coming at him from Paris. Von Bülow is fighting other armies. So they can't turn. And if they do turn, then the armies they were fighting are hitting them in the back. They're trapped. The only thing they can do to alleviate this open flank issue is to pull back. Von Moltke, when all this is going on, falls apart. And if you ask me, understandably so. This is a guy who's been under tremendous pressure already. And as he watches this plan, so important that for years it had been known as Der Tag, the day when this plan is finally used, you know, whatever the heck the plan was. Really, this the day means the day that the Germans launched the war. He's watching it collapse in front of his eyes, realizing also that this will all be blamed on him. He's coming apart at the seams. He writes to his wife, as all of this is becoming clear, quote, I cannot find words to describe the crushing responsibility that has weighed upon my shoulders during the last few days and still weighs on me today. The appalling difficulties of our present situation hang before my eyes like a dark curtain through which I can see nothing, end quote. One of von Moltke's staff officers, a colonel named Bauer, wrote, quote, Desperate panics seized severely the entire army, or to be more correct, the greater part of its leaders. It looked at its worst at the supreme command. Moltke completely collapsed. He sat with a pallid face, gazing at the map, dead to all feeling, a broken man. End quote. Churchill was sympathetic when he wrote, quote, Everything now converged upon Moltke. Who was Moltke? He was the shadow of a great name. He was the nephew of the old field marshal and had been his aide-de-camp. He was an ordinary man, rather a courtier, a man about the palace, agreeable to the emperor in the palmy days of peace, the sort of man who does not make too much trouble with a sovereign, who knows how to suppress his own personality, what there is of it, a good, harmless, respectable, ordinary man. 
and onto this ill-fated being crashes the brutal, remorseless, centripetal impingement of tides and impulsions under which the greatest captains of history might have blenched. End quote. Moltke had later written, while he still lived, that in the moment of supreme crisis he had grown, quote, nervous, end quote. Lots of sources report that von Moltke went to the Kaiser at this point and said, Majesty, we've just lost the war. I have never been able to confirm that, though. And truth be told, they didn't lose the war here. What's just happened is the chances for an early knockout blow, an outright German victory, that's what's been compromised. And I'm going to say compromised because it's an open question whether or not the Germans blew this or the French simply rallied and gained a victory. There are lots of mistakes on the German side that people will point to, basically insinuating that without those mistakes, the French go down. And yet look at the fact that they were still there after suffering unprecedented levels of casualties and punishment. And forget about that for a minute and understand the condition that those armies are in before they turn around at the Battle of the Marne. They are falling apart, dead on their feet, you know, wearing rags and unable to keep their eyes open. And that's who the general from the First Army, von Kluck, that's who he singles out when he talks about the part, you know, of this war so far that surprised him. He wrote, quote, that men will let themselves be killed where they stand is a well-known thing and counted on in every plan of battle, but that men who have retreated for ten days, sleeping on the ground and half-dead with fatigue, should be able to take up their rifles and attack when the bugle sounds, it is a thing upon which we never counted. It was a possibility not studied in our war academy. End quote. So he was obviously impressed. There's no way to deny. And, and listen, we don't want to shortchange the British Expeditionary Force either. They proved to be potentially crucial to this whole thing. And as Churchill pointed out, sort of providentially at the right place and at the right time sometimes. But this is one of those victories where you just have to you know, tip your hat a little bit to what the French achieved. This is monumental stuff. Um, it is truly heroic. It's a little like the Alamo for Americans, but on an enormous scale. And at the same time, I want to remember the Germans in all this, too. As we said earlier, they get a bad rap from a lot of us because of the Second World War, and rightly so. But a lot of that is connected to the First World War. In a funny way, I see them, you know, not to bring up some sort of science fiction reference. I mean, where would that come from? But, but they're a little like Anakin Skywalker, this, this nation that's new and young and has so much promise and potential— H.G. Wells had the greatest name for them I've ever heard at this point. He called them the best and the wickedest nation in the world. You know, the militarism that so scared him and his socialistic sensibilities was balanced out by the fact that the Germans were so admirable in so many respects, what the Germans called culture, their music and their and their writings and their sophistication and 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 their science, my gosh, and their education. I mean, Wells is overflowing with all these wonderful things to say about Germans. But they've got this flaw, and it's this militarism, and they're the best and the wickedest people in Europe. And, and somewhere along the line, Anakin Skywalker turns into Darth Vader, and the poor Germans get that to be their image for the you know, 20th century. You wonder again what the enormous stakes of this you know, German really defeat are. If von Moltke and the Germans had been victorious here, 
the entire German history in the 20th century is different and perhaps much, much, much more positive, almost certainly, for Germans and for everyone else too, I think. It's a very interesting what-if scenario. And it's important to remember that when you think about these soldiers dying on the ground in these nameless, awful battles, whether they be French, British, German, or very soon a lot more people from Canada and South Africa and Australia and Indochina. I mean, this is going to become an internationalized war soon. All these people are good people caught up. Well, they're just people caught up in in, in the grand plans and grinding wheels of, of nation states. They went into these conflicts for reasons that are understandable today. Patriotism, duty, love of country, to protect your family, all those kind of things. They also went for reasons that were really important still in the 19th century, but that are a little different today. Glory, heroism, romance. As I said, they still exist, but not quite like they did back, you know, from the beginning of history until right around this time. In September 1914, a general named von Bolfers talked about the changes that this first month of the First World War you know, created in that facade of romantic war when he said, quote, if war was once a chivalrous duel, it's now a dastardly slaughter, end quote. And the suffering on the ground, regardless of which side you're on, is pitiable and horrific. And, you know, I, I always try to make sure, and I hope I'm successful at this, that we're never exploitive of the, of the terrible things that are going on to the people in these stories we retell. The reason that I use them is because, for me, these stories intrigue me because I always put myself in them. And then I try to imagine handling these things. And as a person who's interested in the extremes of human experience, there are almost no exceptions to the stories we talk about on this program. I can't imagine it. I mean, I just feel like I would wilt under the pressures that these people live through. I mean, when you talk about being interested in the extremes of human nature and wondering what I would do in the same situation, I think about the worst places in the world you can think of. I mean, if there's a top three or four or five list out there, one of them on my list is the Western Front in the First World War. And we're about to get there, and it is about the worst experience in the world. 